Welcome back to Creator Talks. I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. On this giant-sized episode, I have not one but two guests appearing on this podcast. First up, Frank Barbieri. Frank is the writer of several comic books, and we're going to be talking in particular on this episode about Violent Love, which just came out in its trade paperback. It collects issues one through five of the series, that's the first arc, and it will be continuing in July. But not only do I have Frank Barbieri on this podcast, I also have the artist of the series, Victor Santos. Victor is also his art partner on Black Market for Boom Studios. Now, Victor resides in Spain, and this is Victor's first English-speaking podcast. So I am very honored and pleased to have him on Creator Talks first to talk about his work on Violent Love and some work he has upcoming with Dark Horse Comics and another project even further into next year, 2018. So I'm very excited to bring to you this podcast today. I hope you enjoy it. I'd love to hear your feedback after you've listened to it. You can reach me through social media on Facebook and Twitter at Creator Talks Pod. That's at Creator Talks Pod. Or by email through my website, creatortalks.com. That's creatortalks.com. So again, this is a two-part episode. The first part, we're going to talk to Frank Barbieri. And immediately following that interview, I'll be speaking with Victor Santos, who is a writer-artist. And we will talk about Victor's upcoming book, published through Dark Horse, Rashomon, that he writes and draws and colors and is due out this fall. But you can get your order in before final order cutoff date. So here now is my interview, starting with Frank Barbieri, here now on Creator Talks. guest on today's show is a writer whose work appears frequently on the comic book stands and in comics. You know, you think about names like Jason Aaron, Jeff Lemire, Brian Wood, Colin Bunn. You see their names in comics a lot. And my guest today, Frank Barbieri, is the author of a slew of comics. And among them, and these are among my favorites too, Blackout through Dark Horse, Black Market through Boom Studios. He also worked on Solar, Man of the Atom, and Deja Thoris through Dynamite. Uh, white Suits, Revisionist for Aftershock. I'm getting tired just talking about it. And there's a whole lot more. But today, I have Frank on the show to talk about two books in particular, Five Ghosts and Violent Love. Frank, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Uh, whenever people list my work, I always realize how many books I did with name, uh, like black or white in the cover, <laughs> in the title. <laughs> and uh, it always makes me laugh. I'm like, oh, I guess I do numbers and colors is where I'm at. But uh <laughs> But no, no, thank you so much for having me. And Violent Love, I mean, this, I would say, from the way you talk about it, this is your pride and joy. This is your dream collaboration working with Victor Santos, who you also worked with for the first time on Black Market. Uh, yes, and, and that was such a fortuitous turn of events, as it seems. And, and that was, uh, I really give full credit to uh, my editorial on Black Market, uh, to the editors at Boom who are very close uh, pals after doing two books with them and just really good eyes for talent, uh, Eric Harbour and Chris Rosa. And uh, they actually put Victor on the book that, well, they showed me his work and were like, hey, do you know Victor's work and, and suggested hiring him? And of course, uh, I was a huge fan already. And it was just one of those things of like, oh my God, I would love to work with that person. Uh, and they just happened to set that up. And Victor and I really hit it off while working on that book and became good friends and really just... Uh, I mean, me knowing his sensibilities and him getting a sense of, of what I was into as we talked and became friends working on the book, uh, we just came out of that and said, let's do something that if we could only kind of do one book, this would be it. And, and Violent Love was that book. And again, I, I can't believe we already have a trade of it out. And I'm actually uh, 
lettering issue six as we speak. So we're still pretty far ahead uh, as we're coming right back with another arc. Uh, July, I think July 12th, I want to say the first one will be on the stands of uh, the second arc. So issue six. And uh, yeah, we're just kind of been tearing through it. And it, it's been an awesome experience on my end. And again, I, I've been very fortunate with uh, everyone I collaborate with uh, to be kind of a fan of their work. And it, it is just the joy of constantly seeing art come in and constantly just making something new. And uh, we did uh, a lot of five goes. Uh, we did 17 issues of it. So you get kind of into a pattern of, of working on this stuff and seeing the work roll in. And uh, I don't know, it, it, it's one of the only things in life for me that is not a diminishing return. I'm always excited to see new comic work come in and it never gets, <laughs> it never gets boring. And the thing I always say is as a, as a comic writer, my secret desire is to be able to draw. So whenever you get uh, kind of pages from collaborators, it, it gives you that weird, like proud dad feeling of, uh, Oh, this is something like I, I didn't draw, but I worked on it now has become art. So that is, that is what kind of keeps me into the, uh, creative side of the medium you know the way you go about it you do the full script for the book in the case of uh well in case of all of them but in violent love you do a full script for uh, victor and he adds his own little flourishes to it to the script i mean it's not just a one-way uh street where you say this is what i'm looking for this is how i want it laid out i mean you know some artists prefer that they want to just know what what would you like to see and they want to deliver the goods and others like to have a little more you know a little more play with it and you two definitely work together, you know, fit perfectly uh, as far as collaborating and back and forth and making little adjustments here and there. They seem to be completely welcome. And Victor is just such a great artist for this book. He's very much, and I'm just reading about his work, it's very much in the style of Bruce Tim. It's a big influence on him. Uh, and for something that's a, uh, a crime book, having that kind of almost playful look to the art, it really you can do more with the story and not make it too graphic because it's the way and the style that it's drawn, but it just has a lot of impact all the same. Yeah, I mean, in he where he doesn't go for realism, obviously, I feel like he makes up for spades in, in acting, and that's what I love about his style so much. And uh, even so much in in Black Market, uh, there was a bit of narration in that book, but a lot of the scenes that were ostensibly talking, uh, so much of them relied on just good character acting to get across either just like subtext or, or just any kind of emotion that is not spoken. And that to me is the most, one of the most important things in a collaborator, like, can they sell that stuff? Cause I tend to try to shy away from, from narration when I can, uh, violent love, obviously we have the, a little bit of the frame story narration, but largely we don't get like, uh, narration or thought balloons from the characters, what they're thinking or feeling. And, and Victor is just one of those collaborators I know who I can rely on to sell the acting and even also bring just even more to the table. And that's what I love about his style as well. Uh, just, it is really versatile and it never, I mean, we never step away from the fact we were making a comic book. This is a comic book project. It's not trying to be a film. It's not trying to be anything else and and that's another thing i love about his style it really embraces i think a lot of what the medium does well and uh he will do really creative paneling and, and as you mentioned and, and as i often say i do write full script but under the caveat that it will always change when the artist uh works on it as i give them kind of full creative liberty to to play with the layout and etc and, and people <laughs> i feel like everyone always wants to hear the like the horror stories but i have never had uh a bad collaboration 
because I, I think I come into it in the right headspace. It's something I say to young people a lot when teaching, uh, especially if you're just a writer and you're coming into comics, you have to really learn to both visualize and let go. Because if you over visualize, I feel like you're always going to be disappointed when the work comes in because it's never going to look right. And I really just feel like, you know, especially a modern comic uh, writer really has to collaborate with a lot of people. Like very rarely are you going to just work with one person your whole career or, or just not have to work with a lot of different people. And yeah, you develop shorthands for, for different collaborators, but really you need to learn to, for me at least, uh, let go of that control a little and stop thinking about how it's going to look and more uh, worry more about the story you're going to tell and, and the kind of, I guess the beats of the action I feel like is really what we dictate. And, and people always want to quantify the collaboration between a writer and artist, which I think is just such nonsense. Quite honestly, like it is a collaboration. Like if you want to sit there and try to break down like algorithmically, like who is doing how much work percentile wise, like, I mean, that's just not the purpose of, of the medium for me. And I mean, it, it can, I feel like every, every month or so the drama starts on, on <laughs> Twitter and such, uh, I'm just like, Oh, well, who does what, who's doing more work. And, and I mean, it, it's just such a nonsense argument. I mean, it's a collaborative thing. And yes, the, the art is physically demanding. It takes much longer than, than writing on the whole, but then there's a lot of stuff on the writing side that, falls to the writer as well. And it just becomes such a, again, a, a completely like Mobius strip of an argument <laughs> that has no good outcome. And, and I just uh, really find in my work, like it, it is truly one of the collaborative uh, art forms and experiences when there is both a writer and an artist. And it's just, you can't quantify it so simply. And, and to do yeah. that is reductive and everyone, I, I mean, I do understand when it becomes people wanting more credit, but I mean, that's the discussion between the creative team. And I, I am someone who firmly believes in just always co-ownership that it's always, I, I don't know, if I want to retain everything for myself, I would write novels and lose out. I feel like on what an artist brings to, to the experience of making comics, but uh, it really is just a, a joyful experience to write for someone who is then going to turn this work into comics. And there's so much that gets added in there that it, Back to the original point. I'll stop progressing no, <laughs> here. But no, it just becomes, it, it's not easy to quantify. You know, like you, you can't say I did exactly this much. The artist did exactly this much. And it, when the work comes back, uh, I also do a lot of my own lettering, which uh, mostly for my creator and stuff, but here and there on, on some of my for hire stuff, like I uh, lettered most of Solar. Uh, but it, that is really a cool process for me as well, because then you get to go in and actually be part of the art and, and add in there as well. Uh, but uh, long story short, though, it, it really, though, is very hard to think at the end of the day what these pages are definitively going to look like. I mean, I always have an idea, and especially after you collaborate with someone, but it is the joy of writing comics for me to know, like, oh, you can always be surprised and always find stuff that for me thankfully 99.9% of the time looks better than I thought it would be and uh I do have some friends who who write probably a lot tighter than I do and it this is me not diminishing any of my peers or friends but like I feel like they get the same result and for me it really becomes like an exercise in in learning just like how to get the the best work from from whomever you're collaborating with and and really just what they need to do 
their best work. And uh, I feel like Warren Ellis said it. And I mean, it's not so insanely sage-like, but just remembering your writing instructions for someone to draw. Like it, it is not any harder or more thought out than that. I mean, I think the challenges become, in, in part of what I love about comics, the challenges really become more of uh, more of the higher level story structure stuff I really enjoy and, and thinking about like, okay, well, what actions are we going to see on every page? Like what are the character arts? Like what is the good uh, kind of characterization, et cetera, et cetera. And, and you really lose a lot of the labor of just having to write and describe, which again can be joyful, but just really is not where my, my headspace normally is. So so when you have someone able to do all that heavy lifting for you, it really just comes down to it. I think just being able to enjoy more of the creative process of writing rather than the like mechanical brute work of of actually just writing description or, again, which can be really poetic and beautiful and good prose novels. But I feel like that's that's really what the joy of comics is for me. You get to mainline the the kind of plot and, and bigger story stuff rather than worry about like, oh, do my sentences sound pretty or, or things like that. And I think... Uh, I've been very fortunate just to have great artistic collaborators who can really just carry that end of things without me having to really be like, there's a brick wall with exactly 17 bricks. Brick number seven is, <laughs> is missing uh, like half of it and anything like that. Like that, that is just not anything that ever appeals to me. And I, and I don't think any of my collaborators really want scripts like that either. So, so I've been fortunate to find, I guess, people who, work well with me and where we understand the nature of the collaboration. And in that, you know, to reduce it down to its mechanics takes away the art of it. I mean, I would compare it to comedy where if somebody does something that's funny or says something that's funny or does a bit that's funny and someone says, well, tell me, why is that funny? Break it down for me. Analyze that. It stops being funny. It becomes <laughs> funny. You know, sometimes you say something yeah. and you laugh yourself because you're like, that's really funny. And you didn't like work through in your head how it's going to sound. It just popped out and that's pretty funny. It's and it's almost like love too. Uh, well, okay, you're in love. How does it feel? Break it down. You can go through all the chemical processes and reactions and the psychology of it, but then it's like, but it's bigger than that. So to break down something that's an art into its reductionist components might be helpful for teaching, but beyond that, you know, the spirit and love of the art of the individual has to really go into the work, and you really can't break that down. I mean, it's hard to do that, and you're fortunate in that for your creator-owned work, you can pick the artists that you're going to work with. Uh, that's why you collaborate so well, because you're able to choose the people that you work best with. Yeah, and, and I mean, it, it's one of those things, too, where you really only get the experience of doing that by doing it. So I've been very fortunate, again, especially in the case of someone like Victor, where it was someone who I was a fan of their work and got the opportunity to work with them and, and thankfully hit it off enough that uh, we were able to then kind of grow our own thing as well after. But yeah, no, it, it, it's really been a great experience for me finding people to work with and, and getting the work that we've created together out of them. And, and I don't know, it, it is just such a wholly unique process. And, and people often ask, like, uh, it's funny, one of my very good friends whom I've been friends with for a long time, like, literally asked me the other day, and I know she doesn't uh, read comics or begin to follow my life so closely, but she was like, wait, so you don't draw? <laughs> it was just reminding me of one of those things where it's like, oh, yeah, people fundamentally sometimes don't understand the collaboration, but I don't just sleep over that. Though I just don't want to take credit for the art as well. I mean, I wish I drew, but <laughs> not in the uh, case of these books. But uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it's one of the hardest things about uh, starting out and, and continually is finding people to collaborate with and people you, you work well with and trust. And I don't think anyone lasts too long on the writing side of comics if they're not 
able to kind of communicate well and, and find collaborators. It's the number one question from people who want to get into comics as well. Like, well, where do I find people? And I'll always be like, well, I wish I knew quite honestly, <laughs> but, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I've been very fortunate in, in the sense of, uh, finding more than a few people who I love uh, to work with. And it, it, there is always the, the interesting, like, uh, experience of watching people go off and work on other stuff and, and wishing kind of, you could just <laughs> keep them in your corner forever working on your stuff. But it, it's, it's also fun because I mean, there's a lot of people like, like Toby Cypress is one who, uh, again, I just totally blind emailed when we were putting white suits together and he's someone whose work I love so much, uh, and got a chance to work with him. And now he's doing a whole bunch of new stuff and I love, love seeing his stuff. But part of me is just like, Oh, Toby, come back. I would love to do <laughs> more work as well. Well, let me ask you about Violent Love. Now, the trade just came out, as we're having this interview about a week ago. Uh, issues one through five are in it, and I have the single copies here. And oh, well, thank you. I, I love the trades. I really do. And I love the monthlies, too. And your your secret to making the monthlies a must-buy, besides, of course, great story and wonderful art by Victor, is that you spend a good bit of time on the cover and trade dress. I mean, it's not just slapped in there. You really – the two of you work and collaborate on creating some really cool covers I mean, I just have them here in front of me, like the first cover. And I think there were two covers, like A and B for each issue. Yeah, we, we did an A and B cover for, for every issue in the first arc, uh, which was cool because I know Victor loves to kind of design and do, do variants. So I was like, hey, well, we don't need to go to anyone else. And as long as you have the time and the uh, <laughs> kind of enthusiasm, feel free to do that. And uh, we, we cut back on that for arc two just for – quite honestly sales reasons it's hard to kind of maintain because uh, they're not incentive variants or anything it's literally an ab cover we found that like as we we're getting toward issue five like people really just kind of chose one or the other so we want to to cut back on it but uh victor always has a million cool ideas for for different covers and different layouts and and i have to also give give more than due credit to our designer dylan todd who actually uh came up with the logo uh and and does a lot of our issue to issue design elements uh who worked with me on Five Ghosts, and again, I, I love his stuff, and whenever I can, and he did actually the White Suits logo as well, uh, but whenever I can get a chance to, to choose my designer, I work with Dylan as, again, it's just someone who we, uh, who we found when working kind of with self-publishing and have been fortunate enough to uh, kind of hold on to, even though he does a ton of stuff as well. He does a lot all over, and he does a lot of image, and uh, again, it, it's cool, to, again, to, to constantly be able to see someone else's logo like with the same designer like and, and get a sense of kind of more of of Dylan's aesthetic as well so when we talk about doing new stuff I could be like oh well I really like what you did here or, or something like that but uh graphic design is one of those other things that everyone thinks they can do but until they see like a really good designer they don't get what it actually is and I I remember again doing my own lettering like I used to be like oh I can do logos I can do stuff like that and there's a whole bunch of stuff. I, and it was really when we were self-publishing five ghosts that I was trying to do <laughs> logo dress for the book and it just was not working and it looked so crappy. And uh, finally when I met Dylan, because uh, he had done Sam Humphrey's early stuff, but it was his work on, on that book that, oh my God, I see the logo in my head and I cannot think of the name of it. But, uh, but I, I just uh, approached him after seeing his work on that, which I really enjoyed. And he immediately like, came up with the five ghost logo and, and put it onto that cover that we have for issue one, which was the uh, cover of the self-published issue. <laughs> and I'm like, Oh, this immediately looks 10 times more like a real comic book, not just like my crappy, like 
<laughs> attempt to just like throw some fonts together. So uh, I feel like that's another thing, just like good design people are, are so, so important. And again, I, I can do lettering just fine, but logo design is such a unique kind of skill set to have. But uh, oh, yes, absolutely. But no, and, and we try to do that. I mean, I, I wish even beyond that, that we could put even more content into, uh, into the monthlies because it is such a interesting format and something that I really do enjoy. And, and that's why we also do try to always strive to put backup content. Like uh, we're running that uh, story from our friends, Ryan Ferrier and uh, Jamie Jones, the constant distraction comic, which uh, will be back with number six. Uh, okay. I think we've done two chapters of that. We missed, uh, we kind of boxed them out for a month because we did issue five double size, <laughs> but uh, they are ready to go with uh, more of that as well. And, and that's really me just literally wanting to make use of every page uh, of the book. I mean, Unfortunately, we can't do uh, double-sized issues every month or, or beyond 22. Well, we could if we just don't have the infrastructure. But uh, it is one of the fun parts of, of being able to control every aspect of the book at Image and use every page for uh, what we want. As uh, Again, anything I can do to incentivize people to kind of read those monthly issues is, is so valuable as just in, in terms of pure business for the book. Like, that is where we make the majority of our money. And obviously we are not uh, <laughs> rich by any means of the uh, word, but we, we have to be able to hopefully turn some kind of profit from the book to keep it going. And, and we've been very fortunate with, with Violent Love so far that we have been able to keep the lights on, so to speak. But uh, it, it really comes down to the idea of needing those monthly readers and part of why we incentive price trade, which uh, again, I was just talking to one of my friends about this, which is uh, so, so cheap in, in terms of, what you're getting not to not to shuck my own wares but like uh i feel like in, in a lot of online vendors and amazon it's only like seven dollars and it's like well <laughs> i'm sorry to the people who bought the issues but know that the issues are also kind of more limited artifacts so to speak but we really hope that we can convert some uh some monthly readers after checking out the first volume and uh I mean, it's the price of two cups of coffee. So you can, <laughs> you can. I think if you have any interest in, in crime and comic art or, or even just image output or my own output, I, I really hope people do check it out because it is a book we really care about. And uh, I'm super uh, ecstatic about the trade design, quite honestly. I, I feel like uh, this was the issue designs were as well, but like uh, Dylan did a phenomenal job with the trade design. And again, Victor has so many cool art assets in there and, I don't know. I'm very, very proud of uh, how it all came together. Well, here's my advice to people that have bought the single copies. Like I have. I bought them for Violent Love. Um, I bought them for Five Ghosts that we want to talk about more in a minute. But I also bought some of the trades for Five Ghosts because here's, here's what you do, folks. If you already have the single issues and you love the comic, buy the trade when you see the author appearing at a, a bookstore or at a con and have him sign the trade. That way you can keep your single copies pristine. You can have a nice trade copy. I mean, that's what I do. I have. The, I like to have trades on. Yeah, you've got to figure it out. That's a good, uh, good strategy. And I mean, I, I'm, I'm extremely adamant about keeping myself cheap when I can as well. Like, uh, and it's not. I, there's a lot of different schools of thought on this. Uh, but for me, I mean, I know comics is a niche hobby, and there's so much out there right now. For me, it's like you know what? Like, I am not trying to just like. <laughs> squeeze an extra dollar or two out of people like i, I really want to give good incentives on my uh software control the price to get people to buy in a competitive marketplace and and honestly i think the the ten dollar trades have been fantastic and uh, oh, yes. 
in terms of five ghosts, our hardcover, we, we really kept the price down on that. Uh, it's actually $35, uh, which again, I makes it very hard to make a ton of money, <laughs> but, uh, for us, it's much more about converting those long-term readers and, and getting people into the series and giving them something nice that they can kind of pick up to without totally price gouging them. And again, it, it's a lot of different views and a lot of different folks, and I don't begrudge anyone for, for charging what they charge. But in our boat, I feel like we're still new enough that we want to give people the intensive to check out our stuff. And, and I, I can't remember who said it. One of my one of my friends had said when we were talking about just the amount of people reading comics is you meet a lot of people now and uh, as the medium grows and, and the readership grows, we're like, yeah, I love comics. I, I read comics. And they'll be like, oh, awesome, what you read? And they read one uh, kind of graphic novel a month in one trade collection. And that's fine, but if they're reading one trade a month, they're reading Saga. They're reading mm, yeah. Lazarus. They're reading probably the like very, very top tier stuff. And, and again, that's awesome because the more people we have reading at least one thing a month, the, the medium still so small, in my opinion, that that adds, but you just have to be smart about the realistic market out there. And for us, it's, it's normally keep our stuff cheap, keep it on time, keep it good. And <laughs> then just build slowly on that. And it's uh, kind of just the only only stuff we can kind of control. And, and that's why I always say the only thing I can control is, is the quality of the work and sometimes the price, <laughs> but we, uh, we, we tend to lean more into keeping it uh, more cost effective for a consumer rather than worrying about profit. Well, the quality and price are outstanding, but the other thing you're doing as well is that you do make quite a few comic book appearances. I know you were in my area. Uh, about a year ago and um you know you do signs at, at uh, comic book shops you go to cons to meet the public meet fans and that's very very important you can't just stay in your studio i think all creators realize that now that it's so competitive that it's important to establish a connection with your fans and your audience which is why like, i do the podcast so people get to hear you speak and hear your ideas and we'll even get off topic about things because i want them to know the person and not just the name in the book so um that's what really people have to do because it is so crowded right now you know absolutely i mean there's there's no better experience than going like directly to the source of people who you know like comics quite frankly as a again i i think we've really made even in the four years i've been actively publishing in just the direct market i feel like there really has been some growth but uh still there is it, it's just so hard to expect to like grab 10 people on the street and find even like seven who will say that they read comics regularly. So, I mean, you've got to go to where, go to where the people, you know, are interested are and, and just always, I, I mean, I think the, the hardest part is always making sure you have something new too, because there's, mm-hmm. there's a ceiling on, I think the amount of people you could see, especially when you do a lot of the same shows, like it's great to see new people, but you want to always have something new for them to check out instead of just being like, Oh yeah. Like all the books you bought last year, those are all the ones still on the table and <laughs> we can chat, but there's nothing really new to push forward. And I think that that's really just the struggle of, uh, of working full-time freelance in comics, just always making sure that you're pushing ahead and you have new stuff. And I mean, it, it, it can be, very hard as there are very few places in reality to actually publish comics. And again, I, I've been very fortunate to kind of keep a steady flow of work, but uh, really in the moment uh, I have a few new things that I'm slowly getting off the ground, but really focusing on, on Violent Love and Five Ghosts as a continuing series. Uh, 
is where my head is right now. And uh, it is so crazy to me that people are still interested in five ghosts. Like I, I'm inevitably like super thankful for that, but uh, we did take quite a break and we always want to come back, but uh, I just feel like there's been a really good response from, from fans and, and we soft announced that we are working on more. Uh, we're not scheduled officially when we're going to do it. Obviously we'll come back to the image, but I don't want to step on their toes at all and say when or where, but uh, we're hoping by the end of 2017 to have, uh, at least one or two new issues out and uh, just working on it today. And uh, we're just very thankful that we have a community of readers who stuck with, with the book and are still excited about it after kind of two years of inactivity. But uh, it is a book we, we want to keep doing as long as humanly possible. And we're jumping right back in at issue 18, which is exciting as again, it, it's a rarity, I think to have a series with so much behind it, but uh, we're really, again, continuing on the storyline that we've been building and, and the characters we've been building instead of just trying to, to relaunch or anything like that. Oh, great. No, cause I, I've been waiting. <laughs> I've, I've never yeah. forgotten. No, seriously. Cause I'm like, Oh, I hope that comes back. And, uh, I mean, not only do I love the whole concept behind the main character of the book, Fabian Gray, harnessing the power of five literary characters. It's fine if it takes a while to come back cause there's just so much you can do and just take your time doing it, you know, yeah. do, do the best you well, can. Then, <laughs> that, that's where we, we got to, right? Cause we, all things considered, I mean, it was uh, our first, quote, professional book. And, and again, whatever that truly means in, in the terms of image, as uh, a lot of people, I think, are slowly realizing. But like an image, you don't have editorial or anything like that. It's basically a self-publishing imprint in a lot of ways, except it's their logo and they do marketing for you and kind of get in stores, and et cetera. But uh, in terms of book production, we turn in the finished book and they print it and then send it to the stores. Like So it is a lot of work to, to kind of maintain all that. And I mean, I just fundamentally do not understand how some people are doing like three or four books at image right now. I mean, typically that I think at that point they bring on editors and things like that to help keep things in line, but uh, it is very demanding. And uh, we kind of just jumped right into that from having done nothing to, uh, again, I, I always thought the story we were planning to maybe if we got five issues out in a year, like that would have been <laughs> good in a self-publishing world. Uh, but uh, we just kind of burned through and did uh, 17 issues, probably over two and a half to three years. So, so we kind of really got our wires crossed a little bit, but it was a really teachable experience. And part of the reason we took such a long break was we really just were so burned out at the schedule we set for ourselves. And it, of course, there's that fear of like, oh, will people lose interest if we don't keep this out? as much as possible, which is why I say, I say with just so much relief to, to hear people are still so interested in the book and, and anxiously awaiting volume four. But uh, to that end, we are really just focusing on making the best version of the book we can, the best story, the best art, everything. And, and we've all grown in our time in the industry. And it's really cool to have something that we created that we actually have so much of, and we kind of know what it is, uh, for better or worse, at this point, we can really think like, okay, this is what, what goes into a five goes comic and 18 through uh, 23 is going to be the next arc. And uh, really it closes out what we consider the first, uh, first book of five goes. Uh, so it's kind of this longer story we've been building since issue one. And uh, coming out of that arc, we have some really cool twists and stuff we're, we're doing that will bring us into 24 and 25, which are, I feel like we're going to do a two arc, 
or two issue kind of story there for those milestone issues, uh, maybe something even longer for 25 as again, hitting that is a fun milestone for us. And then uh, being still moving forward into, into again, arc five and, and hopefully beyond. I mean, if we can really just hone in on this is the number of readers we have every month and, and know that for certain, we really just want to keep making the book as long as we can. I mean, we feel so fortunate to stumble into something that we love so much and, and that we fundamentally enjoy making. And uh, we are not at a loss for material to work with. So, uh, but I, I, I do think that coming out of 23, we have like, I hate the like buzz term of it, but like a new status quo for the book kind of in a way. And, and I think something that will excite our longtime readers and kind of give us uh, new material to work with going forward. And uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's, cheesy to say but i feel like we are just focused on making the best five ghosts we can at this point as we know is we spent a lot of time figuring out kind of what the book is and what it does well and now we're able to come into that a little fresher a little with a little more perspective and uh i don't know i i, I mean it, it is fun for us I, I i've done a lot of work i do work that feels like work i do work that is a joy and here it really is just like oh well this is whatever we want it to be this is again, entirely our thing. And, and there's a lot of, uh, I mean, there's a lot of stress in it, but there's oh, sure, yeah. a lot of, a lot of freedom in that and a lot of, uh, relaxation and knowing like, okay, well, this is entirely on our shoulders to, to be what we want it to be. And, uh, I feel pretty confident that we have at least a kind of core audience who, who enjoys the book for what it is. And it takes a little bit of the pressure off of always having to come up with like new cool thing, kind of like, uh, people, tend to like what we're doing at Five Go, so we just really want to refine and deliver on that, and, and again, focus now on on doing surprising stuff with the characters and with the story. We've established enough of the kind of ground rules, so to speak, that now we can really kind of put our heads together and think about, like, oh, like, well, wouldn't this be fun, or, or what if we shook things up this way? So uh, I think there will be a lot of cool... I mean, we, we've completely plotted the new art, but I, I'm hoping that there will be some surprising stuff in there for long-time readers, and... Uh, really just a lot of the best form of the book. Like uh, we know what the book does well. We know where we may have fallen short and, and we've really worked to kind of refine that on our end to, to make the best arc of five because we've had basically. <laughs> and, um, and uh, again, uh, I feel like Chris just started drawing, uh, started working on 17 like this week or 18, excuse me, this week. So, I'm excited to see what he comes up with <laughs> as I, I know what I put in there and I know some of the design stuff we discussed, but uh, we're in that part of the book now where it becomes real. So uh, I, I will definitely also be sharing a lot of it as we move forward because we are working to get kind of a sizable chunk done before uh, we start publishing so we can stay ahead, but uh, we're not going to be too cagey about it. We'll, we're not going to spoil anything, but we'll be showing some progress as we move and uh, maybe even releasing any some kind of... Uh, kind of teaser issues or anything like that that we do on our own if we're uh, at any shows i mean new york i know we're eyeing to possibly do something for but it really just comes down to scheduling and if we're both at the show of course i hope you have a chance i mean I'm sure this is already planned out but yeah i would love to see more done with the individual literary characters that they get a little more time in the spotlight to explore them a little more deeply um and i have to tell you i i do have one problem with the book it's like i get a piece of black forest cake and i'm like i love this and then i'm like wait what happened i finished it 
because <laughs> I, I guess I read it too fast. I mean, I'm like, well, no, it, 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 it is the craziest thing. I feel like even looking at, at the trade of violent love, right? Like, uh, it has been so all consuming in my brain for the last, like probably over a year, even though it's only five issues, we started working on it pretty early on and, and had actually a long, uh, development phase. And, uh, and I look at the trade, and you can, you can read that trade probably in like an hour or two. Like I, I feel like with a lot of my work, it, it tends to be very visual, and and it's not like it's reading, uh, got up, but like Charles Dickens or something, where you really need to sit there and spend a few hours. And it's just so funny to me that it, it I, I can see like fan facing, like, oh damn, when's the next one? Oh, two years, thanks, guy. <laughs> it's, but uh, but thank you. That, that that's why I'm here. But we're really committed to doing a lot of the book uh so we can hopefully kind of keep it out at a steadier pace and really kind of and get it to the people who want it. It, it it is an extraordinary luxury to have anyone like anything you make and i feel like anyone who works in comics beyond just doing one book realizes that that they're not all going to be books that people seek out constantly and, and the fact that we have an audience for four or five ghosts and they're interested in more really does mean a lot to us and beyond just keeping the book out we're, we as i said we want to make sure it's the best version of the book we can and, and something that people will get excited about and uh i feel like that was really as proud of all the work we are like toward the end of our three like just on our side we were just so stressed about the prospect of immediately diving in and getting more out and, and worrying about the schedule and it was just a very daunting task. And, and I think it was ultimately, and, and I hope it shows in the work, like a very healthy thing for us to kind of step away for a minute and really give it its space. And, uh, and thankfully just see the trades continue to, uh, to kind of find a new audience. I really like Chris Mooneyham's art a lot. Um, and I think I've mentioned to you before when I met you, it, it kind of reminds me of Sal Buscema's art, but I also, I'm just looking at the cover of the second trade. And I also see a lot of uh, Joe Kubert in there too. Yeah, I, I can't remember if we discussed, but uh, Chris went to the Kubert uh, School and was one of the last classes actually taught by Joe himself. So obviously, I think that was very formative on him, and he really found a style that evokes a lot of that stuff, which I swear I, I'm surprised more people don't try to kind of tap some of those kind of older masters to like draw inspiration from, because it, even just like using Five Ghosts as the example, like it, there's such a fondness for a lot of that style and a lot of those just kind of elements of, of that art that are just so dismissed, I think, by a lot of modern artists. So I, I find that it's the thing where we had a, uh, a story and a book that fit so well with the style that it, it kind of became bigger than the sum of its parts, if it makes sense. But uh, it, there's, I think, so much cool stuff going on in Chris's art where he has kind of taken a lot of classical elements, but because he is a, a younger artist at the end of it and, and also reads a lot of modern stuff, he has a lot of his own little like modern flourishes that he'll get in there too. And at the end of it, it really creates something that is uniquely him. And again, it, it, it is just such a big part of the book. And uh, I honestly can't imagine trying to do it without <laughs> without him. There was a minute where I wanted to do a, uh, a kind of uh, spinoff series and, we started actually working on it a little bit, but it just did not feel right. And again, the art was, was awesome for what it was, but it just didn't feel like five ghosts. And uh, that was really a moment for me where I'm like, oh, well, it got us talking again about like, why don't we just keep doing the book? So I'm, I'm glad we, we did at least explore that because it kind of reminded us what was what. I wanted to ask you too, 
um, about another book that you just wrapped up not long ago. It was um, Revisionist with uh, Gary Brown. That was through Aftershock. Uh, yes, yeah. A uh, very good experience. I mean, I think it was interestingly at a time where Aftershock was still very new. And I think a lot of the kind of hype that is involved in, in promoting books wasn't out there. And, and again, I don't mean on the publisher side, but just in the public side, uh, I think it slipped under a lot of radars, but it was a really cool book that I had wanted to do for a long time. And I was so glad to do it with, uh, with Gary and Colorist Lauren Athey, who again was my hand team who obviously I'd worked with before. And, uh, again, we, we had a fantastic experience doing it. It was very hands off. Like, uh, Mike Martz who edited it did a great job editing, but like he really let us do what we want and would just kind of give his feedback. It was never, any kind of like back and forth or, or argument with the editor where you hear horror, horror stories of people working on stuff. But uh, I, I really love that book. I, I want to do a time travel book for a long time and spend a long time trying to think of like kind of a more unique into that um, kind of, I guess, trope versus uh, some of the other stuff. But uh, I need to check in with them because I don't know if we're doing a trade or when it's scheduled for us. I would love to have a trade of it, but the uh, short pitch, if anyone listening was not aware, is it's about a uh, time-traveling assassin. So someone who essentially has to save the timeline by committing murder. And, of course, murder is the one thing that they don't want to be doing as they're a recovering uh, kind of convict as well. So some fun irony in that and, and really just, uh, again, a really cool, good-looking book that I was really proud of. Uh, we channeled obviously some some fun like 80s stuff in there as well but uh ultimately i i feel like even uh though it is one arc i don't know if we'll we'll ever revisit it we do get that kind of full character arc with our lead martin and, and i feel like what i want to say with the book uh and with the idea of time travel i i at least accomplished on that <laughs> on that no, end, no you so, did uh, and at least you left it to the point where you could come back if you ever found the time and wanted to you could pick it up you did close it in such a way that it's a satisfying read if it was going to be one volume trade well i'm, I'm glad to hear that from someone who read it rather than <laughs> rather than myself <laughs> so thank you for checking out but uh when you do a lot of new books and when you do stuff that tends to be like four to six issue miniseries it is just so hard to make people care like people read a lot of stories people get a lot of fiction people get a lot of as I said, we, we compete for not only money, but for time. Like, yeah, most people would probably be watching some of the best TV that has ever been available Then, as someone who constantly works on new stuff. I'm immensely, immensely flattered when people just genuinely like that material because I, I, I obviously skip around genre a lot, but I find when we do a lot of new stuff, it's, it's always an uphill battle to convince people it's worth their time. And obviously we always think it is, but, uh, when you don't sometimes have the fortunate uh, or good fortune, really, of, of having a buzz book, something that really just catches on and people are talking about, or if you're not at one of the kind of bigger tier publishers, it is wholly possible for stuff to, to slip through. And uh, again, I, I don't mean to say in a diminishing way. I'm telling people, if you did like The Revisionist, please, uh, it's all on Comixology, and I think you can get it all for relatively cheap. Or if you know a, a comic store that keeps uh, back issues well-stocked, it was a uh, six-issue series that I was very, very proud of and, and feel like we really got across what we wanted to do with the book. And uh, I think it, it falls in – it does have a little bit of that that pulp sensibility about it as well. I think Gary really channeled some really uh, cool, energetic, kind of almost 80s-feeling art out of it as well. 
Definitely. Yeah, and I know it's hard because you're trying to build the audience and there's so much pulling at them. It's hard to get that audience. Believe me, I understand. Because uh, yeah. <laughs> there's, there's just a lot out there. But I think you understand, like me, it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. And we just keep plugging Absolutely, away. Yeah, yeah. yeah, I mean, because like you're dipping your hands to a lot of different kinds of work, a lot of different kinds of genre, but you're consistently just out there plugging away. And you're, like I said, your name keeps popping up in my pile of books. I mean, I have certain names that are just always there and yours is always there because you're working on so many books. Yeah, and it, it's... Again, it, it, it's one of those things where uh, I'd hope that, uh, and, and I feel like I do see it often, comics does tend to be small enough where if, if someone likes one of your books, they'll go and find other stuff. And, and I feel very fortunate to just have built a pretty good library over the last uh, four years is really what I consider uh, since I started publishing in the direct market. But uh, the revisionist, I, I really think if, if you enjoy Five Ghosts, it's obviously not cut from the same literary cloth, but I think from that kind of pulpy, like kind of action side with a more, I don't know, modern sensibilities in a lot of ways versus mm-hmm. five ghosts, which tends to have more of the adventure kind of throwback. But, uh, I think you will dig it if you enjoy five ghosts. So I highly recommend <laughs> uh, anyone who's interested in that, but, uh, I do need to check in with them cause I would love to have that in a trade, but it just gets to the point where if it's not viable, <laughs> if people are not seeking it out, I can't begrudge the uh, publisher for not wanting to, to invest in that. But, uh, it is a book that, again, I, I really did, uh, want to do for a long time because time travel is definitely one of those things where everyone has their X, Y, or Z story. And I feel like everyone has their time travel story. And, and initially with revisionist, what brought me to that is I was, uh, it, it went through some permutations of course, but I was really fascinated by the idea of someone who invents time travel, not realizing that they're actually just really messing things up. And then, having to go back and fix what they did. And, and obviously that became more of a story about uh, fathers and sons as it's the father who quote invented time travel and, and goes through first and realizes, Oh, there's, there's actually a lot of problematic stuff that needs to be resolved. And, uh, and ultimately uh, there was a lot of time spent like figuring out some of the nuanced rules of like, of the timeline and, and time travel that isn't necessarily on the surface of the book, but uh, it was definitely a fun little, exercise for me to go through and have to be like okay well how is our time travel not the time travel in looper how is our time travel not the time travel in terminator 2 and uh we're making a lot of charts <laughs> <laughs> a lot of weird pictures about how how our timeline worked and uh i feel like i was fairly uh adamant about keeping the idea that it's one timeline that's getting constantly uh edited over and mm-hmm. i mean ultimately not spoil it but we do a little bit that insinuates there may not be the total truth of it but uh that was definitely the impetus for me to not do like a multiple worlds type uh type timeline and and really just add those stakes of like oh well this is the one we got if we broke it it's done and (laughs) that's a big problem because there are a lot of people muddling with the timeline in, in the revisionist well, otherwise, if you wind up creating multiple real- different realities and it starts branching off, it gets really confusing. And I, I hate when time travel stories get way too confusing. And there's a lot of good ones out there. And I like yours because it's different from the rest. I mean, just this week I had on a podcast where I talked to Tom Zaylor who did a time travel story, Time and Vine, about this guy who owns a wine shop, takes guests to a cellar, and they drink a bottle of wine and they go back to that year. So that was a time travel story. <laughs> I, I love- what, what a, when did he do that book? I, I've never heard of it. It, it is come. Actually, it's coming up. Uh, ooh, wow! I should know this off the top of my head, but I think it's in July. Oh, nice! So yeah, it's an IDW book coming out, and I thought that was a really unique approach. Of course, yeah, I mean, yeah, that's fun. I love Doctor <laughs> Who, so that's time travels, time and space. 
And, uh, you know, just like the old Dr. Toon's time travel platform. I remember back in the, one of my favorite stories back in the 70s was Marvel Team-Up when Spider-Man got a hold of that and traveled back to the Salem Witch Hunts and moved his way up to traveling to uh, Deathlock, his time period. And then, I think it was reverse. I think it was Killraven first, then Deathlock. But anyway, time travel to me is just great. You know, it was that, that's one of my favorite yeah, stories. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's one of those things, right, that that it is such a fun genre trope. And, uh, and that's why... It, it, it's like the stress of always trying to do uh, do stuff and, and hope people get from it what you want to get. I mean, you can never control what the audience gets, but uh, I, I really like the the bigger moment of uh, of what what I thought was appealing about time travel is to have a world where time travel is viable, where people are doing things, but but really have the character arc relying on our character learning like, Oh, this is always how he was meant to kind of do things because it's who he is. Not, not destiny per se, but like realizing something about himself that he can't just easily rewrite or, or get over just even with that kind of, uh, classic kind of, uh, uh, what is the word I'm looking for? But like kind of power fantasy of being able to change the past. And and I love the irony of like, Oh, well, you can go back to the past, but you can't change who you are, and, and that kind of sticks with you. That's where my head was when really working on Revisionist, and, uh, and it was a lot of fun. Besides your creator-owned work, you have another book coming out soon. You've already finished it, of course. This is uh, You're working with Steve Orlando on Martian Manhunter and Marvin the Martian, special number one for DC. Where's the kaboom? Uh, yes. <laughs> now let me ask you, it, it, honestly, how many times have, when you've done an interview, someone done that voice of Marvin the Martian? <laughs> Do you wish you got paid for that? <laughs> oh man. It, it, well, that is a, a, Steve is one of my best friends and, and it was really a great experience to have him. Uh, I was, again, I was back up in, uh, in Jersey and he lives up in, in New York state and he just came over and we worked on that together. We broke the whole thing and then, uh, figured out what we we're going to do. And, uh, it's one of those gigs where you never expect something like that to be on your plate. So when it comes up, it really turns into like, okay, like how do we have fun with this? How do we do something that makes sense? That feels, uh, well, in, in terms of the guidelines we were giving, they wanted it to feel more DC than Looney Tunes. Cause, uh, at first we did a Looney Tunes take on it, which was really silly and fun, but, uh, they were like, oh, no, 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 we want these to be more DC. And it was like, okay, well, we're not doing uh, – like we had like Martian Manhunter turning into Bucks Bunny and stuff. It was it was very like uh, silly. But uh, what we ultimately came up with was a uh, more kind of true DC take where uh, – and, and just I have to give such credit to Aaron Lepresti who did the art. And he managed to like have Marvin look both – DC realistic yet still cartoony and I mean obviously Marvin has no face but uh, as I was saying before Aaron did, did such a phenomenal job with the acting that every time he's speaking around page you can really just see <laughs> so much emotion in Marvin who is again a fairly silly cartoon character but uh, I, I feel like we really lucked out with that pairing as I, I'd be so fascinating to see what some of the uh, other creative teams did with their characters. But with ours, we had that really nice DNA of them both being Martians and also Martian Manhunter being such a phenomenal storied character that uh, it was fun to, to kind of dive in there and think like, okay, how could this actually happen? And, and I think the first few pages are online where you can see the general setup. But uh, what we came into was to really do a story about, uh, Martian Manhunter not really feeling at home on Earth, feeling like an outsider like he is, and, and struggling with his identity and 
he gets a distress call uh, from the multiverse and basically rebuilds the Ertl gate, which is what brought him to earth. And uh, when he fires it up, Marvin comes through and I think he quickly realizes he's bitten off more than he can chew. And Marvin is not in fact there to help him save the planet, but to destroy it. So that's really our, our setup for that. And uh, we got this great kind of story about John realizing that maybe he is, uh, not as in touch with his Martian roots as he'd like to think when he meets Marvin, who is, <laughs> as I said, I think a little more than he expected. Oh, that's great. I'm looking forward to that. That's uh, June 14th. It's coming up very soon. Oh, gosh, yeah, just two weeks from now, I guess now. Yeah. Oh, that was a, another book that uh, we, uh, I feel like we initially like broke the story back in January, so I feel like it's been a long time coming. But uh, I, I saw the final thing, though, and it came out uh, beautiful. Hi-Fi did the coloring, and... Uh, Jerome Moore, I think, inked it, and it really is just a, a great-looking, uh, fun book. And I think if you like either of those characters or are just fascinated by what we would do with the pairing, you should check it out as uh, we really want to make something that delivered on that concept but also is like a good Martian Manhunter story as well. And I'd like to think we we, we gave Marvin a little more substance than he's traditionally had <laughs> as well. No, I definitely but, uh, we, check we got a lot of his famous uh, – oh, thank you so much. Yeah, yeah, we, we got a lot of his famous little uh, – character ticks and, and catchphrases in there as well. It was fun to kind of do that within the DC universe. I saw some of the clips on YouTube the other day, and I was just amazed that the first cartoon was in 1948. Oh, my gosh. And it looked great. I mean, the copy yeah, was yeah, fantastic. I, I, had, I had no idea that was that long ago because I, I had seen some of it recently, and it still didn't – like, it holds up. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. And Mel Blanc did the voice for that, and I think he did it up until, like, 1980. And then a bunch of other people came in and did it, but no one beats the master Mel Blanc. He was just phenomenal, could do all the voices. <laughs> yeah, and I, well, it's funny because I, I, in doing research for that, I learned quite a bit more about the character and about Looney Tunes, and that was one of the things I, I did not know that it was all Mel Blanc like that, or Blanc, or however you say his name. I'm... I think it's Mel Blanc. <laughs> trying, I, think you're, I think you're right. Trying to, cla- trying to class it I always up, make like... it French, Mel Blanc. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. No, no, it's uh, those books all definitely look, a lot of fun. I, I definitely am curious as a reader to see the other books. I know Tom had done a Elmer Fudd is a serial killer in his, so that's going to be <laughs> interesting. And yes. drawn by Lee, Lee Weeks, which is awesome. Oh, I'm great! Excited to see that as well. And uh, I I love the uh, <laughs> the cover is all I've seen from it, but the Lobo Roadrunner Wiley Coyote uh, <laughs> pairing is great because that cover. Because when I first saw it, I'm like who is that wolf? I'm like, oh my God, that's Wiley Coyote and they're hunting Roadrunner. That's so good. <laughs> <laughs> I think there's one too, and I, I may have misremembering this, but I think it was Yosemite Sam, Jonah Hex. I think, yeah, there's a Yosemite Hex, uh, Yosemite Sam, Jonah Hex, uh, and then there's a Tasmanian Devil Wonder Woman uh, <laughs> as well, which is, and I think Jim Lee did that cover and drew just like Taz as like this like crazy mythic creature. <laughs> oh, wow. No, it was a fun project to be a part of. And, and as I said, I, I really stand by the story we told, too, and hope uh, hope people dig it. Uh, oh, man, Steve had sent me a fantastic uh, – I don't remember who – I need to look up who did that issue of Martian Manhunter now. Uh, but from the original Martian Manhunter run, uh, I don't want to say if it was mid-'90s, but uh, an issue where – where they explain John's like affinity for, for the like fake Oreo cookies, Chocos. And mm-hmm. I had just not read any of that stuff uh, back in the day. I was not really 
into DC growing up. <laughs> Shame on me, but uh, no, that's okay. I was a Marvel guy than, myself. Uh, yeah. yeah, other than like Batman, Superman stuff, but mm-hmm. uh, truly, truly great stuff in, in that old Martian Manhunter series. I read a few of those issues, and they were all really just awesome, like done in one stories that had a lot of heart and, and a lot of humor in them as well. But uh, it, it's one of those joys of working on on kind of like legacy characters like that. There's so much you can draw from, and so much. Uh, to kind of just read before you get to work. I mean, not enough hours in a day to sit there and read the whole run, but uh, <laughs> it is one of the, the fun parts of working on established characters is going back and seeing other people's takes and when someone did something great and basically saying, I hope mine stands up. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure it will. I've seen your track record. I'm not worried at all. Let's talk about you as a writer. Now, you left your high school teaching job to become a comic writer. That's a full-time gig as a freelancer. But you were still doing some lectures about writing on the side too. Uh, yeah, I'm, I still actively always try to whenever I can. I mean, I would love to actually just straight up like teach college writing, like in addition to freelance. I mean, it, it's a competitive space. This is everything. But uh, I don't know. I, I have very uh, – I don't want to say <laughs> – biased or like staunch views but like I, I really am disappointed in a lot of the ways creative running is taught and specifically uh it's not taught as a craft as much as it's just kind of open uh kind of open workshops and just like oh come write stories and and we'll all just talk about them like I, I think that there's still a bias in in the American education system about the idea that like you're either a writer or you're not like you can't learn it you can't mm-hmm. there's no craft element like you either come in fully formed and ready to go or you're not a writer and and when I taught middle school full time I was amazed to meet middle school students who would already tell me that they weren't writers and I would just be like pump the brakes you're 12 years old like <laughs> <laughs> let's be real you don't know what you are right, right. now like let alone uh, where your your skill sets uh, come from and, and really I found in a, a college setting I, I'm I enjoy lecturing and, and kind of talking a little bit more about some of the more uh, artful mechanics that I think get lost on people and, and particularly like with uh, with comic artists who are convinced that they cannot write that is not like within their purview to write their own stories and I I really feel like that's just a shame for a lot of people and obviously I don't want to lose my job and I need to be able to collaborate with me but I think there's much more uh that can be taught than a lot of people give credit for like they don't have to just come out of the womb ready to be like oh I am a writer I will will do what I <laughs> do and it'll all be perfect and uh that and also I, I really want to teach uh, comics business. I feel like there is a severe lack of actual business information taught in in American art schools uh and it, it's more of a pragmatic thing that it's very unfortunate to me that as the quote writer, especially in a lot of my creator own stuff, like you are expected to be the one who knows how everything works. And it, there's no way to learn that information other than by just doing it. And I genuinely fear for people who are coming out of school and trying to work on their own book and, and have no idea how diamond works or the distribution or just like the actual finances of comic books and I feel like, and, and again, not, not putting universities on blast, it's awesome that there are comic programs, that there are sequential art programs, and there's a lot of great ones, but I really feel like business needs to be taught and updated, and there's, it's just such a weird business, and to make an actual living at it, you really need to be aware of, of how it's, how comics are distributed, how much money is actually out there, like what your different options are, and uh, 
it, it's really something I'm, I'm passionate about. And again, I, I hope to find the time and uh, availability to do, but uh, it, I like teaching. I like learning. I, I read a lot of kind of uh, cool writing books. I, I think there's a real value to seeing just different people's opinions and, and kind of finding your own holistic view on the craft versus just like, well, I'm going to wing it and, <laughs> and hope what comes out is good. And uh, I find comics to be a very interesting format in terms of, of writing and because it is similar to something like writing for TV or writing uh, for the screen where you have kind of hard page counts where you know like, okay, Marvel and DC, we have 20 pages a month. Like, how do we work with this? Uh, and how to basically innovate within that format. And uh, I, I feel like recently, regarding uh, Black Monday murders, I heard uh, just John Hickman talk about how he had written so many 20-page issues at, at Marvel uh, when he was like on Avengers and really just churning through that he became disenfranchised with the format because like readers, I feel like we write to the smartest audience we've ever had. And they know the general structure of a 20 page issue of a 22 page issue. And it is very, very difficult to surprise, to, to work beyond that and, and find something to do. And, and I feel like that's why he, with black Monday murders really tried for a different format. But uh, I feel like there's so much you need to be equipped with to do that well and to keep your work surprising, to keep your work energetic. And a lot of the craft stuff is just never discussed or taught. And, and especially because it is uh, writing a comic is often judged by the quality of just your dialogue, like from the readers or, or basically that's it. They, they think that's the only part that is written. And obviously it's so much more than that. And I don't know, it, it, it's somewhere where I think the people who have genuinely good craft quickly come to mind, like uh, people like, like Brian K. Vaughn, like Warren Ellis, like uh, they, there's a reason why everything that, some of these writers do is phenomenal and it really comes down to their mastery of, uh, of craft that goes well far and beyond comics. And, and I don't know, that stuff really fascinates me and is, <laughs> is what gets me out of bed in the morning and, and to uh, talk about it, especially with students is really great for me because I feel like a lot of that stuff like came to me later in life after working. And so much of it is like, Oh gosh, I wish someone would have, really shown me X, Y, or Z while I was in school. And, and that's just the kind of stuff that I really am passionate about showing young people and talk about. And, and it all makes you a better writer, in my opinion. And you can dismiss it. You can, everyone has their own way. You can say like, well, I don't need an outline. I'm just going to sit down and write. And you know what? That works for some people. That's great. Like it's never a law, but I, I feel like to not at least be exposed to that is really a misstep. And, and it's, uh, Again, it's a lot of universal craft stuff. And just that idea, though, of writing being taught more as a craft than an art, I think is not really in vogue in, in the academic sphere right now. And I, I think uh, I think if anyone, the best people to talk to about it are TV writers. They have their deadline, they have their format, and they know how many pages they have to hit. And then you just have to innovate within that. And I think that's that's why I think a lot of those writers are more apt to talk about they're writing as a craft versus just like, Oh, well I go to my special place and get in touch with my muse <laughs> because they know they have to do it week in week out and, and actually work. And uh, again, I, I don't diminish anyone or their process, but I, I think young people really need to, to learn more of the craft elements 
uh, in school, not just be sold like, oh, write a story and we're all going to sit around and tell you what's wrong with it. That's my <laughs> rant on, on teaching, right? But no, I, I really do genuinely enjoy it too. I, I find that stuff very fascinating and I try to keep as well appraised of it as I can. I mean, some of my friends will make fun of me when they see me reading like, uh, like how-to books or anything about writing, but I, I genuinely find the, the teaching and the structure of writing uh, fascinating. And I think anyone who is a writer should be putting their face into as many of those books as they can, because it, it, again, every now and then you can find something illuminating or just learn more about your process by what you don't do or, or hearing someone else talk about uh, kind of what they their process or experience is. Have you thought about uh, doing your lectures at comic book shops and at libraries? Like, for example, you're there for signing. Maybe later on that evening, if you have the time, you would then have a, a special seminar or class for aspiring writers to go over some of the things we've talked about. Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I saw Kelly Sue DeConnick actually do that once uh, when I signed with her at Third Eye. And yeah, she is excellent. And, and I think someone who, again, is also very mindful of the process and just kind of the, the ways to go about it. But uh, it, it's definitely something I've been hoping to get more into. I mean, I, I've also impossibly piled more work than I can possibly do on top of myself <laughs> these days. But uh, but it's really something that I am excited and uh, passionate about. So, yeah, no, I, I definitely should probably look more into that when I am traveling. I, I've actually, despite having really worked hard to kind of get out there as much as I can. I feel like this year I've been a little more reclusive as I, as I had moved, God, not probably this year, but kind of been out of sorts uh, in terms of uh, traveling and, and I'm getting ready to possibly move again. So it, it's been a little all over the place, but uh, I would definitely love to do that uh, as well as, as, I don't know, I would love to actually teach at, at a school wherever I ended up as well, because I think it is, I, I, there's a few people I think who I, I think out in Portland, uh, Bendis has his class and he uh, actually publishes book, which was great about specifically writing comics. Uh, it's called Words for Pictures. Uh, my friends uh, and I, I think Dave Walker teaches at that school in Portland too. I don't, I don't know which school it is. Forgive me for my lack of territory, but uh, I think that's one of the few places that actually teaches comics writing. Uh, is there a lot of sequential art? programs and like writing is is taught within them as well but uh i feel like the majority of it is, and and for me just on a personal note what really got me into writing and, and led to me writing comics i i was a long time or lifelong reader of comics but i never thought i would actually write them but uh when i took screenwriting in college it was the first time i really learned any kind of like craft or story structure stuff and uh that really just kind of flipped a switch in my brain of like, oh, well, this is what it means when a story has beginning, middle, and end. And after approaching that, I, I read an article about how, uh, of all places, image was all creator uh, submitted or submission driven. And I just put two and two together. It was like, oh, well, I can't, I can't break in as a screenwriter, but and I love comics, so I should just hire people and start making comics. But uh, really, I feel like it was it was learning some of that that craft in a screenwriting class that that got my brain kind of in the in the headspace to tell stories and, and learn how to actually do it effectively. And as I said, some people reject craft outright, like in whatever, if that works for you, go for it. But I, it is something that I feel like can be improved upon and I think taught a lot more rather than just having to have people learn it on the job because they're people who are probably great writers who, one, don't know it because they, they don't think that. They just have the 
weird special proficiency they have to have or to writers who can probably be much better writers. They just learn to approach their work, I think, in a little more analytical way. And and everyone always fears that, like, oh, well, I don't want to, like, <laughs> write mechanically or anything like that. But uh, I think there's a lot that can be explored, uh, especially for young people, uh, that can be illuminating rather than uh, reductive. I just have some questions for you that I asked all my guests. They're just fun questions. Oh, please, go for it. And it's uh, Well, first of all, uh, do you have any guilty pleasures outside of neck pillows to, to brace your neck? <laughs> Listen, I <laughs> recently discovered that and it's changed my life as I, as I go full old man. Uh, I'm trying to think. Well, I, I wouldn't call anything guilty, but like I like video games. I mean, I, I've played video games my whole life. I was born in, in 84, so I feel like I've seen the whole, uh, the whole evolution, uh, I'm a lazy gamer, though, which works for me being uh, <laughs> kind of productive as a writer. Like, I can rarely play things for more than, like, an hour at a time. I can't really get sucked into too much. But, uh, but it's something that really fascinates me, and especially in, in 2017 with the art form becoming so much more of a sophisticated way to tell stories, et cetera. But uh, I like eating. Like, I will eat gross stuff that I probably shouldn't eat. That's my real guilty pleasure. <laughs> Yeah, we all have and, our failings. And, I do the same thing sometimes. <laughs> yeah, right. I mean, I, I'm I'm glad it's just not like cocaine that it's food, but <laughs> so that yeah, works out yeah. for me. And, and I'm trying to think of in a comics or storytelling, you know, I, ah, there's nothing I would really consider guilty pleasure. I I really like late or early 2000, like pop punk music. Like, and I will listen to it loudly in my car and realize I am entirely too old to be like listening to that <laughs> loudly, but I don't let that bother me. I mean, that I never try stops to find, me. <laughs> I, I try to find like new smart music to listen to, but I don't, I like kind of pop rock, pop punk music. And mm -hmm. that will probably go with me into the grave. And I'll be that old man being like, you kids like newfound glory. Like that kind of, uh, thing <laughs> but i don't know man you, you learn well, that, like right like as as time goes on just what you like is what you like and that's right yeah i i really love board games that's been my my re weird like despite loving video games and, and playing a little bit of like war game stuff growing up i feel like there's been a huge huge renaissance and resurgence of, of great board games and i was recently telling someone about this and, and that's probably more of my guilty pleasure because i would like buy stuff with the intention probably to never play it. But I think cause I spend so much time in like, uh, in the realms of like story and, and just like really analytical nerdy, like, uh, craft stuff that at the end of the day, the last thing I want to do is watch a movie or even like read something. Cause I just need to get out of that headspace. But, uh, weirdly, I love learning the rules of, of board games. I like playing games and, and I'm not a super mathematical person, but I think the logic side of my brain just really, guess off on that for lack of a better term and uh i i've really gotten into that as an adult and uh i don't know i i find joy in learning those processes and seeing something that's so outside i think what i kind of do all day so because I, I was going to ask what you do for rest and relaxation too but i guess a lot of those things fit into that the board games <laughs> the music you know the gaming yeah i i mean i i played uh i played music for a long time i haven't in a while but it's what i grew up doing and a lot of my friends like were in professional bands and, and ended up touring full time. And I really want to get more into that, but uh, I, I just 
again, I, I would not start a band or anything at this point. It's a really hard endeavor as an adult, but, uh, mm. but again, I, I'm pretty, pretty usual. I feel like the most, I guess, unusual thing again would be board gaming is, is more of what I <laughs> try to do with my free time when I can. I, I mean, I like, I like to travel, but only in the most like indoor kid way. Like I don't hike or anything and I know a lot of people okay. do, but like, I, do. <laughs> I, I appreciate it, but, I, but I just don't seek it out. Like it was mm. never really, like, I've never actually been camping. A lot of my friends find that so egregious and maybe one day I will go, but I, I just, I don't know. I, I feel like I never, never was super outdoorsy. Like I don't, fear the outdoors but no, i gotcha uh, I, I, I like to go hiking i like it a lot but i never camp out i find the hotel the motel the lodge that's where i stay at night <laughs> i'm not gonna sleep I under the stars <laughs> yeah i feel like that i i'm surprised by so many people who do though like my friend was recently telling me they went to like yosemite and just like slept outside i'm just like oh wow like i didn't even know that was something people do <laughs> go figure yeah that's my my inside kid life i just explained <laughs> you said you like to play music you know what today is as we're recording uh, this this is the 50th anniversary of the release of sergeant pepper okay i, I thought so as i saw some uh I saw some articles go up, but I didn't realize that's actually what it was. But oh no way! Yeah, and I don't know if you're aware of this. I mean, since you like, I don't, do you like the Beatles? Are you a fan of the? Beatles? I I do. I I was never okay. like a super fan. Like I feel like some people love the Beatles in a way I do not. But mm-hmm. I I it wasn't really until I was adult too. I feel like I found it kind of annoying as a teenager. Just and not their actual music, but just it was like the like I'm the more insightful music kid because I like the Beatles. Okay. But, uh, <laughs> but I think there's so much there is so much good there. And obviously like talking about people who are at like the top of their craft, like it was such a unique artistic endeavor when you had the four of them together, they created some of the most, I don't know, just like technically proficient, but then amazing pop music at the same time. There's a great deal of creativity in it. Uh, they, they broke a lot of rules with the stuff. I mean, it sounds normal now, but back then that was groundbreaking stuff. That's what's so fascinating to me, right? To not have the context, like when when young people or, or even people my age, like think of the Beatles. It's like, oh, but you, we saw it in this weird post, mm-hmm. like post Beatle world, where like that you got to remember, like that was wholly unique at a time. Like they invented that, and that's the kind of stuff that I find fascinating too. But uh, again, thinking like, oh, like they that was. <laughs> They were not Beatles-esque. They were the Beatles. Yes, that's right. Well, what's so cool is they reissued the album. And I'm like, well, you know, I have the album, the CD. Okay. And, you know, how many times are you going to buy it again? And what they did was uh, uh, Niles Martin, George Martin's son, remastered the album based on the mono mastering. Like he put, he put it together the, oh, way interesting. The, the way the Beatles wanted it to be heard, but it's in stereo, but he used the mono mix method, but he went back to the original tapes. In other words, they used four track tape to record. Then they would bounce it down to another four track tape so they could fit more instruments on there. And they've never before gone back to the original four track tape that recorded the guitar and the drums. So now it's coming right from the tape source, the original. So there's like no hiss. When I listened to this, I, I I downloaded it and I was like, oh my god, this is I've never heard it this way before. You every, like the vocals are in the center, everything's well balanced. When, when did they uh, When did they release that? I think the CD dropped today, but it's on iTunes. Oh, wow. Yeah, you can go to iTunes and just they have all these packages like one hundred and fifty dollars. But I was like, well, I'm not, I can't quite swing that. <laughs> but like for fourteen ninety nine, they have like the remastered album and some uh, previous takes, like take one, take two. But you'll hear. Uh, in fact, I listened to uh, an interview on NPR where they had uh, Martin on there and he had his laptop and he played the original mono mix, 
the stereo, which was actually an afterthought back then. Mono was still the predominant way of recording. Yeah, music. yeah. And I, I remember with a lot of the Beach Boy stuff too. Yeah. Like, oh, this is the mono mix of how like Brian Wilson wanted it. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And then he would show, he would play the the new mix, and I was like, oh, I say, like, some of the things with the right, uh, right pitch. Some of them were changed. They were like a semitone different, and it's like listening to a different album now. It's just as exciting as it was the first time I heard it. Uh, yeah, oh, that's awesome. So I'll it, have to it, check that out. If you're into that I kind of stuff, yeah. yeah, it's a revelation. I was just, I downloaded, I just started listening to it. I just kept, I listened all the way through. I'm like, I'm just going to keep listening until I'm done with the whole thing. <laughs> it's a lot of fun. <laughs> uh, but anyway, just wanted to share that since this is the day. This is the 50th anniversary. Oh, yeah, no, that's awesome. <laughs> Another question. So much more context. To, oh, yeah. Uh, <laughs> the oh, Beatles, yeah. Beatles articles I saw today. Oh, yeah. Oh, it's, it's great. Um, another question I have is uh, an island book. If you were stuck on an island, what is – if you could only have one book, what would be that one book you'd want to have with you? Uh, unabashedly, my favorite comic series uh, is Ex Machina by Brian K. Vaughan and Tony Harris. And okay. I would bring that because even though maybe that's not the headiest answer, but I feel like just the level of craft in that book and, and on all ends but also the writing, like I could just sit there and, and reread that over and over again <laughs> and, and really just kind of – keep that going and i also just think like uh it's such a brilliant concept i mean for people who are unfamiliar man basically uh gets superpowers he gets a superpower to talk to machines uh tries to become a superhero in the real world it does not go well as there aren't really superheroes it's just him so he wants to make changes community so he ends up running as the independent uh party for mayor and he's losing but Towards the end of the election, 9-11 happens, and he uses his superpowers to stop the second train, uh, train, excuse me, the second plane mm -hmm. from hitting the second tower and gets elected mayor because of that. And it's a kind of real-time narrative about him being mayor of New York where they bring up kind of political stuff, but then also flashes back to him being a superhero and has a whole kind of sci-fi element to it as well. And it's just, again, brilliant, brilliant stuff that is, I think largely unparalleled and, and i love why the last man and i love saga but i feel like ex machina just was <laughs> peak brian gave on for me okay that's a good choice um and my final question your beverage of choice when you're relaxing doesn't have to be spirits it can be coffee tea you know what when you're just kind of kicking back you're not working not concentrating what do you like to enjoy i really like coffee i i feel like i the one thing when i started freelancing full-time like i bought a nice coffee machine like a good grinder and i try to like actually research a little more about it and be like oh like well what makes a good coffee i i'm largely not a coffee snob like i i found it too like and this is probably why i can't enjoy wine in the same way as many people i don't really have a like sophisticated palate like i can't really be like oh there's notes of blah 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 or whatever in here but uh but coffee is my my kind of beverage of choice and or water i, I really don't drink drink anything like sugary anymore but uh i there's a coffee house down here that does a drink that i am very fond of where it's a uh, espresso tonic and is literally just espresso water or espresso and tonic water a shot of espresso and tonic water mm -hmm. which is i think is texan because it's a it's kind of like texan place or maybe they just made it up but it, it is weirdly refreshing and good so I drink those far too often. Interesting. Okay. I haven't heard of that and, and, combination. And then they, they like uh, put like an orange rind and like rub the glass with an orange rind. Oh, wow. So, <laughs> okay. That's pretty cool. Fa fancy little easy drink. I mean, I don't <laughs> think I could ever make it at home, but it, it is it, 
I don't know. It works for me. <laughs> All I know is my one friend had it, and he was like, I think they made mine wrong. And I tasted it. I'm like, no, that's just what it tastes like. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have any tour dates coming up or any cons you're going to be uh, attending? Heroes Con is June 17th. Uh, I should be appearing at that. I had some last minute stuff that might get in the way, but uh, I currently am slated to appear there and I, I hope I do make it. Uh, other than that, I think the summer is going to be pretty quiet. I, I feel like my glorious return to the public will hopefully be at New York Comic Con uh, in October. That's uh, another one of my favorite shows. So I, I will be glad to be there. And again, we have uh, new issues of Vinyl Love coming out starting out uh, July. So we'll be pretty far along in the uh, second arc by October uh, and hopefully have some kind of cool new five ghosts, either like preview or something for New York on as well. Uh, over the summer though, uh, again, I, I stay very active on Twitter. That's really the best place to follow me. My Twitter handle is Atlas incognita. I wish it was my name and not that, but <laughs> unfortunately that's what it is. And okay. it's uh, A T L A S I N C O G N I T A. I always talk about what I'm working on, the books I have out, uh, et cetera, et cetera. So I feel like that is the best place to find me and kind of keep up with where I'll be and what I'll be doing. So. Excellent. And I will be following. Frank, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Absolute pleasure. And, and I agree with you in, in terms of I dislike doing paper interviews whenever I have to. I mean, I, I'm glad for the press and the time it takes, but I, I would much always rather speak than kind of Hopefully, <laughs> show people who I am a little more and my, my fondness for board games and neck pillows. <laughs> right. and, and how that informs my work in life. <laughs> Thank you. Okay, that wrapped up my conversation with Frank Barbieri. And now, for the first time on an English-speaking podcast, is the artist of the series, Victor Santos. And Victor is going to talk about Violent Love and two books he has that are upcoming now on this giant-sized episode of Creator Talks. My second guest for this podcast, this is the first time ever appearing on an English-speaking podcast, is Victor Santos. Now, Victor has worked on such outstanding comic books as Polar, Black Market, and Violent Love, Volume 1, which contains issues 1 through 5. Please welcome to Creator Talks, Victor Santos. Oh, hello, and thank you for your uh, invitation. <laughs> I'm glad to speak with you across the ocean. <laughs> it's great to have you here. Now, you're in Spain. Whereabouts in Spain are you? What uh, city are you in? Uh, I live in, in Bilbao, in the north of Spain. Okay. A, a rainy rainy place. So it's good to me because I uh, can work uh, and at home <laughs> without any concern about uh, maybe I should be outside doing things. <laughs> <laughs> right. So it kind of helps you focus on your work. <laughs> yeah, definitely. What is it that you love so much about Spain that would be a compelling reason for myself or someone to travel there and see the country? Uh, you know, what are some of your favorite places, some of your favorite food? Because I know my wife, she spent some time in Spain as a student. Oh. And she said it was great. Um, that fun doesn't really start until like 10 o'clock at night. <laughs> yeah. And the tapa bars are outstanding. So please share with me and the audience what they may not know about Spain that is so awesome. Yeah. Uh, I live in, in Bilbao, but I'm from Valencia. It's in the, in the east, uh, under Barcelona. Really under, but it's the same uh, uh, kind of, uh, of weather. You know, um, sunny uh, with the people uh, outside uh, their homes until 10, 
11, even 12 <laughs> every night. And you can find very good uh, food there in, in Valencia because we have my, my favorite dish is uh, the, the paella. Uh, is with rice. Yes. And I, I love it. But in the north, you can find very good dishes there, like uh, similar to tapas in the north is the pinchos. You know, uh, we only need an excuse to uh, go, um, go to the bars mm-hmm. and uh, eat uh, in different places and not, uh, drinking at the same time. I think it's a, it's a way of life you will really enjoy. <laughs> and of course, I can recommend you uh, uh, not only the in the coast, and in every place in Spain you can find very different kind of, of, of dishes because we have a gastronomy really, really, really rich in, uh, in all kind of varied uh, stuff. And of course, uh, we are a European country, so you can find castles and old towns almost in every place of the country. So if you go to the coast of the north or the coast of the east from where I born, or you go um, to the south in Andalusia, you can find uh, very nice places to visit. Almost in every place uh, or in, in any village. You need really a lot of time to know well the country. I, I understand it's where habits. So, you, you know, we, we eat a lot. We eat at, at uh, two or three. Mm-hmm. And we uh, we dinner at, uh, we soap at uh, 11, um, 11, almost 11 sometimes, but at 10. So it's, it's weird, I understand. <laughs> <laughs> it's a really strange uh, way of life. Does your day start later? Because I know that for a lot of people, you know, that, that's when the big meal is like usually towards the end of the day, like 10. It's really things start late. Do, does work for everyone tend to start later in the morning, the next day? Oh, no. I, 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 I wake up early because my uh, my wife has a nine to five work. Okay. So I try to spend time with her, and I want to, uh, and I like to work. I like working uh, uh, with uh, with the sunlight. So I prefer uh, uh, wake up early. Mm-hmm. I I do breakfast with with her. She goes to her office where where she works, and I and I stay at home working. And, and I work at, at, at day. It's, it's strange because uh, almost all my uh, artist friends work at night. Ah. But I prefer the daylight, and, and I um, I prefer later the the evening and night to to do my life mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, and 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 do different things like reading or trying to do some social uh, feedback and let the, the day to the art. I have this a daily discipline about my work. And it shows, because it really looks outstanding. And uh, on the first half of this particular episode, I talked with Frank, Frank Barbieri, about what you worked on together, Violent Love, Volume 1, which just came out here a couple weeks ago. And, uh, and Issue 6 is due out July 12th here. Frank speaks very highly of you and your work, and you guys have a great collaboration working together. Tell me a bit about working with Frank. You know, in your words, I've heard his side about you. I like to hear what you think about working with Frank. Yeah, Frank and, and me meet thanks to the our Boom Studios uh, editor because they, they are they were searching for a for an artist for the the, the black market script. Frank uh, sent them. I didn't know the the Frank's work, but uh, luckily uh, I need the money that time because I I I, <laughs> I had refused some some works from Boom Studios because I have other other things to do. 
but uh, I need I needed the, the money, and at the same time, I read the 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 purpose of the script, the the plot, and it sounds like something uh, funny to draw. And I have a uh, I don't know I ha I had a good uh, feeling about about it, and, and it was a, 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 a really a good feeling because because uh, we connect immediately. Usually, editors uh, don't uh, do the contact with writer and artist. They they speak with uh, with the, the writer. They speak with the artist, but they try don't don't meet them. You mm -hmm. know, they have the, the, the working stages separately. Mm -hmm. But now, thanks to the social uh, network, uh, we contact and chat about the project, and both of us, we really we enjoyed doing the work. So we uh, chat about doing our own stuff and create a new a new series, and we chat about what what things we love and we things we like in in comic books, and that's where the the born of violent love, and and I love working with, with Frank because uh, it's his. He's of course a, ta a really talented uh, writer, but he's he has something uh, maybe the readers don't perceive because it's more something about the relationship between the artist and the writer. But his scripts are really uh, easy to work with them. He writes uh, always thinking in the art and how the, the the artist is going to develop this story. He's not thinking about uh, impress. Uh, about uh, with with his prose, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, pragmatic guy. So this is very useful because I'm reading his script, and I do, I am not thinking I'm reading in other language. In my mind, I, I see really clearly the images of the things he are telling me. So it's fantastic. And at the same time, he's a very nice guy, and I have the chance to meet face to face uh, when I traveled to New York. So even he's a New York guy. Who speaks really, really, really fast? To me, to understand him, he's a he's a lovely guy. I did an interview with you in writing a while back when I worked for Word of the Nerd, and I noticed you had uh, inserted uh, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, the film, a reference to that in the story. That was something that you added into Violent Love to help put some context around the story about when it took place, the time it was taking place in the early seventies. Those little little touches that you add help to mm. build the story to even a better story. And the way you two work together, you and Frank, you're able to have that kind of collaboration where you're both putting input into the final finished product. The things you can do if you have a, a, a daily contact with, with your writer, when, when the editor separates the artist and the writer and all is in the you know fit, uh, steps, the, that collaboration can work. But I think it's better if, the, if it's not uh, one direction it's uh, like a ping pong uh, game. Yes. Uh, the, the writer sends you things and you uh, go back with other things and ideas. So by uh, using this procedure, you see you can enrich the final book. I always say uh, the writer is drawing my story and I am writing the story of uh, by Frank. Ah. Because we are um, empowering the 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 other the other part of the of our collaboration. Mm -hmm. I don't know if I'm explaining it well <laughs> because it's something for me it's the most uh, natural way to work. So uh, it's it's more it's really difficult to explain something. I always need to explain uh, later. You know that my, my my natural way 
to work is just uh, speaking and 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 adding things and the amount of ideas of the of the script. You know, when I look at your artwork, it's distinct in of itself, but it's very much in the style of one of your heroes, one of your favorite artists, Bruce Tim. Did you watch the animated Batman series when it first aired? I watched the the TV show when I was in high school. When I studied in the in college in fine arts, a week I, I was uh, studying some uh, animation, but th- th- it was fine art, so they were a very uh, artsy concept of the of the animation. They uh, my my teachers showed me I don't know uh, Sovietic uh, shorts of experimental. Uh, animation really 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 weird they dislike superheroes stuff uh-huh. and the things okay. uh, done in, in usa because it was mainstream but uh, i i used the art books of the of the bruce team show to learn uh, animation by my own when i was uh, learning uh, anatomy and art history in college at the same time i was studying animation just working with bruce tim's animation yeah yeah, yeah, with, with, yeah you, you know uh, concepts like like uh Character building, movement, um, storyboard. I, I study these things uh, with the Bruce team. So it, his work is part of my uh, develop as artist when I was a student. I, for me, it was he was more teacher than the teacher themselves. That's interesting. Have you ever met him in person? No, no. And and suddenly he's going to to come to Spain this uh, this fall. And suddenly I'm going to be in another in a convention in Belgium. In Belgium, so oh no, I, I don't know. <laughs> I, I I saw uh, in in a Paris uh, convention a couple of years ago, but he was uh, surrounded by by fans. So I I only uh, um, adore him in silence. I I love I love his work. How about uh, any other influences on you? I understand uh, Mike Mignola is also. Yeah, of course, of course. Uh, uh, Mike Mignola, Fran Miller, mm-hmm. of course. Uh, I, I, I have the chance to meet uh, Fran Miller in, in Barcelona past year, and, and, and I gave him uh, a polar book. Well, honestly, it was uh, Brian Azzarello. I, I met Fran Miller, but, but later uh, Brian Azzarello asked me for a polar book to give to Frank, and I was uh, really scared because I, I thought this is going to be uh, only two options. Or, or Fran Miller loves the books, or Fran Miller, uh, Cal <laughs> is a lawyer. <laughs> I, but no, I I, I know he, he he loved the books, so uh, I'm <laughs> I, I consider one of my masters. And and there, there is another guy, uh, Matt Wagner. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's not so famous like Fran Miller, but in Spain, uh, of course I I. Uh, I I think is 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 more popular in 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 USA because uh, the Grendel and the the Mage books, and and I love I love I love his work. And he was one of my biggest influence, and all the that stuff that that um, election of colors in uh, in polar with the red, black, and white uh, books. Uh, this this is not for uh, for the Frank Miller books because he only used it one one time the red in in a single Sin City story. Yes, it's because the, it's because the Matt Wagner Grendel stories in white, red, and and black. So it's really the the uh, the reason I begin to do the one of the re- biggest reason I begin to do the the polar the polar books. And I, and I I never meet Matt Wagner. I hope have have the chance in the future to 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 give them my thanks. For, uh, 
the uh, his influence. Now, at one point, and I don't, I don't know if it's when you were younger or, or if this was in, in school, but you used to make your own comics of Knight Rider and V. When I uh, was in college, I, I met a lot of, a lot of other uh, people. They wanted to be a comic book artist, and and it was a good time for doing a uh, fan fan science is the name, you know, uh, mm-hmm. amateur publications, and uh, it was really cheap to do. It was really cheap to do uh, your your own stuff. Uh, this was, I feel. A little old doing, uh, saying this because it was before you know the web comics and uh, and and this thing was at the late the late nineties. Okay. So uh, it was really cheap to do it and a, a, a very good way to 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 make promotion of your own work and selling the comic conventions and the self published stuff. It was a a way to uh, a table for for the publishers. Mm-hmm. It was very fun because I learned a lot about how to publish the the books, and it was a uh, a school about uh, every stage of the work, from the art to the scan the stuff, and and I don't know all the stages of the production. Uh, you don't know if you are only drawing, but at the end it was really uh, I was really tired because my my main concern was uh, the art and the story, and I spent a lot of time. Mm, you know, by making the design of the book and, and going to print and uh, speaking and with the with the people of the print and get money for publish my book. So it, it was really a hard, a hard work. I really admire the, the people who are still doing all the work and self-publishing uh, their stuff. You know, people like uh, like Dave Sim or. Or right now, people like uh, Michael Fife with Copra Books. You know, it's a it's a really hard work. It is, and I'm really impressed that you know, even though you studied fine art in college, you have taken the time and put in the the effort and the sweat and the hard work to publish your own books for you know to learn everything about the process, about assembling and marketing, and also just from the master Bruce Tim learning how to do comics and animation and, and, and movement. It's just that you took that upon yourself. It didn't come from some formal classroom training. It was through your effort that you learned to do this stuff and do it so well. <laughs> well, if you read that, that first books, they are really uh, crappy, <laughs> but if you um, produce and get the money for publish your own books, you, ha- you cannot do a monthly book. But uh, it was a very important part of my of my life, and I made a lot of good friends there. They done, and they still being my friends. And these people, I can ask for a suggest, and on and you know in my in my daily work. So so it, it was great. I wanted to ask you about another book too that's currently out again, and uh, this was one of your favorites as a child, Jack Kirby's Commandy from DC Comics. Oh yeah. They have this Jack Kirby challenge for Commandy, the Commandy. Ah, yeah, yeah. I, I read it in some uh, American uh, uh, news uh, pages. Okay. Never, never get in, invited. Oh <laughs> man, I was going to say, geez, they should get you and, and Frank on there, or you and someone. But you guys would be great. You should do one yeah, issue. Yeah. That's one of your favorites, and you would fit so well with that. Oh, thank you. Oh, uh, come on, DC. I think so, but uh, <laughs> you know, I. I, I I I have not uh, re, uh, really uh, big uh, links with DC Comics. I, I 
I knew some uh, of uh, DC editors of, from Vertigo when I was working with Brian Azzarello in Filthy Rich, and I did some things in Vertigo with uh, Mark Buckingham. So I meet uh, Shelley Bond, and but I, I have not the contacts to get that, that, those jobs. Uh, sure, sure. Yeah, but uh, I, I think the people is going is doing the the Jack Kirby uh, that Jack Kirby tribute is is really awesome. So so I don't know. I hope that this kind of of, of projects uh, uh, get money and I have the chance with of doing something with Frank of, of I don't know if on Kamandi or or uh, some fourth fourth work uh, a fourth world mm -hmm. uh, books because I I love it I hear uh, DC was going to be to do some uh, Jack Kirby tribute of the fourth world with different one shots uh, I don't know yes yes actually I doing like this. No, you're right. I actually, I think in the current previews, I was scanning through it the other day, and I think they have some in there. I think oh. they are coming up for August. So, um, yeah, you could check that out probably online through Diamond. But uh, no, I tell you what, don't give up because the rest of us out here are going to lobby for you to be on a DC book like Commandy. You know, like lobby for an annual or heck, reboot the series, start the series again. The challenge is really cool because, as you know, they have a different writer and artist team on each book, and then. The story ends at a cliffhanger, and the next team has to pick it up. <laughs> so, oh. Yeah, they don't know. It's a challenge. That's why it's a challenge because they, they have Commandy falling off a cliff, and then the next team has to figure out what's going to happen. And usually what happens in the book at the end is the previous writer explains how he would have continued the story. But you get to see what the next team actually does. So it's really a cool idea, but it would be great if it came back as an ongoing series or even as a miniseries. And, uh, you know, if we all keep shouting for it, maybe we can uh, get DC to listen and see your work because they're missing out. I see an excellent fit here. <laughs> but another thing I want to talk about is you do have a book coming out in August, and it's in the current previews through Dark Horse Comics, Rashomon, the Commissioner Hiego Kobayashi case. I love the Akira Kurosawa movies. And at the same time, I love it, uh, all the Japanese samurai culture, and I read a lot about about these uh, novels. And and I love the Rashomon original tale, uh, the, from Ryonosuke by Ryonosuke Akutagawa. And it's a very um, special book because it's not only a story about the first story about uh, telling a story in different point of view, and at the same time, it's one of the first uh, crime stories. And I use. Uh, uh, avoid in this story because in the original tale the the police who is investigating the crime of the of the so told it in the story the the rape of uh of the, the wife samurai and the killing of a samurai never appears in the story it's 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 a voice you never hear so i thought about what happened with the, that police who was investigating the the case so i created this heio kobayashi uh, commissioner I developed the idea of a police uh, investigating the pop culture uh, crimes of the Japan literature and, and pop culture, mainly. Mm -hmm. So if he's investigating in that graphic novel, The Rashomon Crime, but at the same time, uh, a lot of crimes and stories of the Japanese movies and, and books appears. The, the Legend of the 47 Ronin and, uh, and the Musashi... Uh, running um, story, there's a lot of crossed stories, uh, and I uh, bring that, that samurai stuff to my uh, noir likes, so it's mixed like the classical uh, American crime stories, 
I don't know if if I need to define. It's like a LA Confidential meets uh, Japan movies. Okay. If what something funny to do because uh, I did for a for a Spanish uh, publisher Norma, I I made uh, two graphic novels of the character, and I. Uh, uh, put together in a single book for the Dark Horse edition. I colored the stuff. Originally, it was published in black and white, but I wanted to do uh, something different for the, for the American likes. Readers enjoy the book, I hope. I'm a writer, too. So I consider myself a writer, too. And uh, and I, I have write a lot of uh, scripts for other artists in Spain. Certainly, my, my, my more complex uh, script of a comic book, because you can see my work as... Uh, as writer in Polar, but it's more a visual story. The, the story uh, works better in Polar. Uh, uh, Polar is more a visual story. You can you can follow it uh, almost without words. And Rashomon is more a more a dense, complex noir crime story with a lot of dialogues and interaction between the character. So it's more a, a dense story. So I hope the American readers will know an, another face of my work with Rashomon. Yeah, and going through Dark Horse Comics, it sounds like a really nice package, too. It's going to be 7 by 10 Yeah, nice edition. So I, I made a cover for the American edition. We, we, we made a design only for them. So I think it's going to be a really, really nice book. Yeah, it's 160 pages, and I understand that the first half of the first book was only printed in Spain. So this is going to be the first time... In both, both books were printed in Spain. Both, okay. It's it's the first time the entire book is translated in English and ah, together, yeah, yeah. together in one volume. Uh, that's, that's it. You know, the important thing people need to know is that it's in the current month's uh, Diamond Previews. So if you want to get a copy of that, you can pre-order it now through your LCS. It's going to go on sale um, October 18th, but if you want to get in line now, get yours, make sure you get it. You want to get that into your LCS, your local comic shop, by the 18th of June. And uh, it's great that you're, you know, you're writing it, you're drawing it, you're coloring it, you're doing everything. Um, just Dark Horse is putting it in a nice package and putting it out there. And it's going to be, I think I was saying, uh, it's going to be 7 by 10, so it's uh, larger than the average comic. It's a little bigger, and it's in hardcover. It's going to be a really nice read, lovely to look at, and it'll look great on the shelf, too. So overall, it's just a great package. Uh, and now there's another project that you'll be working on or you are working on. This is farther out, but I saw that uh, you are working on a book with Alex DeCampi, Bad Girls, that's going to come through Gallery 13. And that's much further off. Like we're looking like fall 2018. But uh, it's set in Cuba in 1959, yeah. right around the revolution. And it's focusing on three women. So tell me how you hooked up with Alex DeCampi to work on this book. We, we never met and, and chat uh, before, but she had uh, sold the script to the people from Gallery 13 and, and the Simon & Schuster, and they were looking for an artist. And she directly uh, uh, wrote me to ask me if I was interested to do this script. And later, I, uh, a friend of mine, Chris Tong, the responsible the responsible of uh, Dark Horse Entertaining, they are managing my uh, my uh, movie uh, rights of Polar. Mm -hmm. Told me he was the the guy who gave her my mail. <laughs> so she directly sent me the the script, the, the complete first uh, draft of the script, and and I read it in uh, 
my summer holidays because um, it was just when I began my, my holidays. And I felt in love on the story because uh, it was a noir crime story, but at the same time, it was placing in a time and a, and a country. I never draw something like this because I, I, I have done noir stories placed in, in Europe and in the USA, but, but never in Cuba. So it was a challenge. At the same time, I, I loved the story because he was a lot of, uh, it was a really good thriller. At the same time, it was a story about character, about female characters, really, really interesting. So I say uh, almost uh, yes immediately. And at the same time, it was a change to me because uh, I have never worked for a books and novels publisher. I always was uh, were linked to um, comic book publishers, but never uh, books, you know, novels and mm-hmm. and a, a big publisher like Simon & Schuster. So it was a very uh, good chance because I have at the same time the two projects. I was doing uh, Violent Love, a monthly work. And at the same time, I have the that the breaks of Violent Love between a script and a script for doing the the bad girls pages. So I'm doing the, the, the two things at the same time. Oh, okay. And in this, all different different uh, uh, markets, different pacing of every story. So it's 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 very interesting, and I think I'm going to learn a lot working in so different companies. So it's Image and Simon and Schuster, and and well, at the end it was simply a a, a case of good luck and perfect timing of the project. So uh, I I hope to have the the book finished at the end of the year. So I think they 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 want to publish the book uh, in the fall of uh, of next year yes mm-hmm. and i hope to have the this, this book open a new uh, a new path of readers because you know they, they are a, a books publisher so i think they are going to arrive to places the comic books is not uh, never never will go never will get yes going through someone like simon and schuster and a major book publisher you will get a different audience and it will get some attention that that people would otherwise miss it and uh, now since you're writing about a story set in cuba and it's a different environment are you using certain reference material to get a feel for the environment for what the setting is like yeah but uh it's a lot of hard work but at the same time luckily we live in the in the era of uh, internet and and uh, Google, and you can find a lot of information about every, almost everything in the world. I never thought I, w- I was going to watch movies like uh, Dirty Dancing 2, Havana Nights. <laughs> 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 but, but you can find a lot of, of, of good information in, in cinema. Not only uh, this movie, but you can find even uh, Cuban movies of the 50s and see the clothing of the, and the environments and the cars. And... I was uh, even looking at um, performing uh, performances of artists of this age, like uh, a young uh, Celia Cruz singer. You know, uh, it's uh, it's a lot of previous work, but at the same time, it's uh, it's funny because right now you can you can find information or, or art sample of everything you want in the in the internet. So it's simply uh, searching and searching and find the things can be useful for your for your daily work. That's, that's true. And but like you said though when you watch films that are set in 
the environment, Cuba, where you're going to be writing about. You see how people act. You see the clothing they're wearing. You get to see how things play and fit together. The films, the sometimes the fictional stories give you a better sense of the setting. Yeah, the, sometimes the, the best way to, to understand an age is not simply reading the history book, uh, watching the and reading about the uh, the fiction or the it's, it's a better sample of the age, the fiction than sometimes the, the history. I've said this before in my podcast here is that I have a better understanding of the 1950s, an era I didn't really know a great deal about, just, you know, information in school and books. But when I started yeah. reading like some of the comics from that period, I have an idea of what some of the fears of that people had of, you know, atomic war. And yeah, uh, yeah so you get a whole you kind of get into the mind and the the zeitgeist of the people, like what they were thinking, what they were feeling. So it, it does really help tremendously when you're putting together a story. So I'm looking forward to that. I can't wait to see it. And uh, you, have you ever had a chance to meet Alex DeCamp? Or is this also just kind of your corresponding and um, that's how you're communicating and getting the work done? We uh, never meet uh, face-to-face. So we, we, we uh, have a communication uh, using the, the mail and um, mm-hmm. You know, social network. We will have the chance in the future to meet because uh, I think she lives in England, so so uh, it will be great, of course. I just have some questions for you that are not related to comics, not related to writing. They're just fun questions about yourself. Oh, okay. Just you know, just to kind of learn a little more about you as a person. What do you like to do for rest and relaxation when you're just relaxing for fun? What do you like to do? I, I love, of course, uh, the cinema. I, I'm a, you can uh, see in my in my books. Uh, I I love cinema and mm-hmm. I love to go to cinemas and and watching the TV shows and and uh, these kind of things. Of course, uh, like a good Spanish guy, I, I love to uh, hang out with my friends uh, uh, at, and and dinner so 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 late. <laughs> and I try to. Uh, Make some exercise. It's not something I love to do, but I try to do uh, jogging. I understand. <laughs> it's necessary. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, <laughs> uh, but it's a good time to for me to uh, order my ideas and and do part of my work. I think trying to don't feel the pain. I I used to make my scripts and even the, my storyboards. Meanwhile, I I'm doing the jogging. Mm-hmm. So it's a good uh, way to relax and and put your ideas clear. Um, I don't know. I, I try to uh, to have contact with to my friends of my on my family. Uh, I, I always try to uh, keep a perspective outside the comic book world. I have a lot of friends of, of this world and and I love it and I love all of them and I, I learn every day from them. But at the same time, I try to have a, a life outside this world because uh, this gives me a good perspective of, about my work, and and at the same time, I, I feel uh, lucky of doing this kind of, of work. Yeah. No, you have to have a life outside of it, because actually that helps to fuel your work. It gives you some ideas. To, if you live a life, you, you can bring more yeah. life to your books, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you need that, 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 that outside uh, experience to have something to tell, because one of the problems of the comic books, I think, is... Uh, if you if we feed off our own past, uh, and if you only read uh, books, uh, comic books, you are always repeating the same things. Mm. So, so I try. I love comic books, and I read every day comic books. But at the same time, I try to to learn from uh, everything I, I 
I have uh, from cinema, from uh, art, uh, books, uh, of my own life. So uh, the, I think this is, a, this is a good way to keep your work fresh and at the same time keep a lot uh, of your work. And I've mentioned this on the podcast before for those who have listened to the show, that um, when I'm running, that's when ideas come to me. And I don't know if yeah. it's just the, the flow of blood picking up and the oxygen to the brain, but I will yeah, have yeah. things pop into my head. I'll actually pull out my cell phone sometimes, which is a little dangerous, but and I'll record something while I'm jogging because it's popped into my head. Now, I might forget it by the time I get back, but that's I, things come to me too while I'm exercising. Yeah, yeah. I, when, when I returned to, from jogging, I used to uh, uh, run to my, uh, to my notebook and, and uh, write some of the of the ideas I just I had uh, running, so I, I think this is something I can recommend to to every artist or or writer. Another question I have, and I ask this of all my guests: If you were on an island and you know, there's no electricity, you know, you're just stuck on an island, what is the one book that you would want to have with you? One book, only one book. Just <laughs> what, I'll give you. It can be a set of books. You know, if it's part of a a grouping, that's fine. But there's no power, so there's no tablets, there's no iPads, no iPhones. It's got to be a book. I don't know. Maybe a uh, Red Harvest is my. I think is my favorite book. The first uh, noir book I I ever read, and I and I used to read it maybe every two years or three years. I, I read it again because I love the Daniel Hammett uh, prose. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I I could add a lot of of books I love from The Hobbit to. Uh, I am legend from Richard Matheson or the uh, Ender's Game. Don't know. Uh, I I I love uh, the books and and I I love to read it at paper. I have a, a Kindle of course and I, and I read a lot, but I still uh, having and buying uh, paper books. So uh, electricity the the lack of electricity is, <laughs> is not going to be a problem to me. <laughs> when do you find time to read books? I mean, I I have difficulty myself squeezing in you know a novel with so much uh information to read for both my day job and for the podcast when do you find time to read uh usually at uh, at night every night i try to read a book it's hard to to read because i used to uh fall asleep uh really <laughs> really quickly mm-hmm. but I try, I try to 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 read every night because it's the, the best way to me for relax and disconnect uh from the the daily work I read some sometimes comic books at night, but uh, it's not the best way to to sleep because uh, because I uh, used to analyze too much the art and the uh. storytelling. <laughs> For me, it's perfect. It's, I I really disconnect with the books, and now with the uh, in the travels, I try to to read all the time I can because it's uh, now with the conventions and and now. And not only in Spain, luckily, and now I'm publishing in other countries like France, and I have the chance to go to uh, con- to attend conventions in now in France, in Belgium, and England. So I try to to use to spend that time uh, reading all the the pile of books I have in my in my desktop. <laughs> That's a really good idea. That's what I do if I if I have a chance to travel and I'm on a plane. I just take a book. I don't even use the tablet so much. I'll just that'll be my chance to sit down and read a book or when I go on a trip. But a lot of times I'm going on family trips. So the books just don't pan out unless everyone's asleep. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I don't used to read in, in, in the travel scene in plane because I I, re- mm-hmm. I, I used I, I used to um to listen uh, podcast 
because uh, I I uh, I really uh, I don't I really hate uh, flying so <laughs> so uh, so uh, podcast to um, relax, uh... relax yeah and don't don't thinking about the about the other the plane yeah uh, yeah oh, yeah <laughs> I, no, it takes your mind off of it yeah, <laughs> yeah. I have uh, some some favorite podcasts I I used to uh, keep for from the keep apart from the so for the for the flights and for the train and bus and and this kind of kind of 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 travel i used to 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 read books yeah i um uh, i queue up podcasts too for when i'm traveling because uh, I'll read for a while, then I'll get tired, so I'll flip over to a podcast while I'm on a plane or something. And it also helps drown out some of the plane noise while you're flying. But I started listening to them a lot because there was work I had to do around the house. You know, laundry, <laughs> uh, cutting the lawn especially, or shoveling snow when it snowed. And I, you know, it was kind of boring and monotonous. So I'm like, you know what? I want to listen to a podcast. First, it'll make this more pleasant. <laughs> you know, I can take my mind off of the work. And yeah. uh, I might learn something. So, and that's how I started. Cause it, and the nice thing is, you can start or stop anytime you want, unlike listening to the radio or even satellite. You can choose when, where to listen to it. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And, and um, I think every artist I know, uh, you, they used to work with uh, listening podcasts. When I, uh, I used to uh, listen podcasts when I ink in. Mm-hmm. Never when I when I penciling because when I penciling I need to be uh, completely uh, focused on the on the storytelling because I don't I don't, I don't used to uh, to draw uh, previous storyboards I used to have all in my mind and, and I begin to to write to draw with a with a blank page with a big blank blank page so I need to be really focused but when I later I'm inking and coloring then I to uh, listen a lot of Spanish podcast about every every subject really okay but the, uh, and it did this helped me to to make the the longer the longer hours of inking because it's the, the hardest part is the funniest part to me but at the same time it's the hardest i used to need uh, some uh, help to make make it uh, more um, more relaxing yes more fun more relaxing definitely writers don't like to listen to talking podcasts you know when they're working because they're trying to write i can't and i know some of the artists that are writer artists they can't either like i i don't know francovilla well i've met him a few times but francesco francovilla when he is working and he's tweeting out stuff usually it seems like he's listening to a soundtrack of a movie that way it's uh, not yeah. distracting so it's nice background music no lyrics it's just the music so you can work and focus that way i let the music for the for the pencil stage Mm-hmm. When I need to be focused, uh, soundtracks used to help me. And, and, when, and when I was writing for other artists, I used to do a selection of soundtracks for ins- uh, about inspiration. Mm-hmm. Okay. And another thing I used to do is uh, when I uh, begin a project, I used to open um, a folder in my computer and I uh, uh, add some uh, songs. Uh, I find they have a connection with the story I'm writing or or I'm sketching something personal, not 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 project like uh, like uh, a franchise or or you know you are drawing a Batman stuff or that thing. When I something is something I I'm creating, I used to have a a level I have a level sorry a folder with songs uh, inspiration, mm-hmm. and when I need to work in this project after a long uh, break. 
I used to listen these songs and it's a good way to connect again with the mood of the story. I used these songs as a key to connect with uh, the mood I need to write again this uh, this project. So I think uh, music is really useful to get the emotional connection you need with the uh, with the story. Are you doing uh, mainly because um, because I'm doing a lot of projects at the same time. I need to make different every project and make every project has its own voice. So music is a good way to to make different every 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 story. Yeah, yes, yeah, kind of set the mood and inspire you and get yeah. the energy level up. I mean, I've I don't listen to a lot of music while I'm writing, but sometimes I have. It might be a certain type of song I'm listening to when I'm writing about a certain subject and I don't hear the words anymore. I'm just like focused on what like the ideas start flowing out of my mind and I start just write jotting them down real fast because that that kind of gets me amped up. Kind of gets me excited and it helps me to uh to focus more just like you said on the on the work and inspire you. My final question for you is about your beverage, your drink of choice when you're relaxing, when you're with your friends and you're out. What do you like to drink when you're out? Also, I am a beer fan. Okay. <laughs> that, that's the reason I, I do jogging sometimes because I, I know the dangers of the of the of the beer and yes. well and the Spanish dishes. <laughs> I, I I love Spanish dishes. So uh, I love the the beer. I um, from Guinness to uh, the blonde beers. Mm-hmm. I'm uh, okay. It's my favorite. I'm not a really fun of you know uh whiskey and and gin spirits. oh yes the, uh, the spirits the hard liquors yes uh, the I, i'm not a fan maybe uh the, the vodka with orange okay. <laughs> screwdriver i think the name the name is a screwdriver the, oh the, yes yes mm-hmm. I, I love screwdrivers uh it's certainly the only uh spirit uh the drink a drink but my favorite drinks are, are the beer and so yeah everything from guinness to a blonde beer and people say oh guinness people who don't drink beer say guinness isn't that really heavy no it's not it's it's no no it, it, it's uh for me the it's almost light light because yeah. uh if i drink a lot of uh beer i don't know the guinness is uh it's fairly low in alcohol you know it's not really a high alcohol beer for me guinness is the is the beer i can drop and can drink without uh Almost uh, no consequences. Yes, you can drink and <laughs> I, think. I think I, I, yeah, I have, a, a, I have, I think, a natural tolerance. Uh, yeah, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> I have problems with 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 other beers, but I have, I maybe I, I'm a I'm a I'm a natural born Irish, and and I think uh, Guinness is made for my for my organism. <laughs> ah, yes, yes. I know some people like they can't drink red wine because they'll they'll react to it because of some of the chemicals in it. In Spain, we have a are really, really, really good wines, white and red. But I don't have the taste yeah. to appreciate a good wine. I feel bad when some some somebody wants to, hey, um, come and get, I, I, I have a really good wine in my home. I want you to uh, drink it. And I feel sad because I really don't appreciate that good taste and, uh, and the flavor of, of this of this wine. <laughs> I have no idea. I, I really I can feel the difference be, between a, a cheap uh, wine, a, a very good and an expensive wine. I keep my interest. Uh, oh, sorry. I I let my interest uh, to the beer where where I can uh, feel the difference between a, a good beer and a bad beer. But I'm completely uh, uh, ignorant about wines. Yeah, I I understand. No, I I actually had a guest on the show. 
uh, about his upcoming comic Friday W Time and Vine that came out this week as a recording and um, uh, Tom Zaylor and we talked about wine and about you know how not to be intimidated by it because I don't know a lot about it you know I mean red white Merlot Cabernet but I don't know a great deal and and I like you I have not been able to distinguish <laughs> a very good one in terms of price because I'm sure that a, a bottle that's a hundred dollars is fantastic but that's not going to yeah. happen with me. I've bought bottles from Walmart on a trip that cost four dollars, <laughs> and it's fine. You know, I mean, I I don't taste much of a difference between that and a ten dollar. Now maybe my palate's not so sophisticated, but it's okay. And I like beer too. I try to steer more towards wine now because I'm just trying to watch my my girlish figure. <laughs> I'm trying to watch my weight, but uh, yeah, yeah. Like my, my wife is a beer lover like me, so, mm -hmm. so we have no problem with. If we uh, go to a restaurant, mm -hmm. oh, no, we have no problem. <laughs> yes, uh, yes, my wife and I, um, we enjoy some wine, and, and I like some beers that she does not. So, uh, <laughs> But one thing we both agree on, though, and this is true, I'm not making this up, is Guinness. We can both enjoy Guinness. She likes it, I like it, so that's something we can both agree on. <laughs> well, Victor, it's been great talking to you. This has been a lot of fun. and. Uh, oh. You know, we'll be looking for your upcoming book from Dark Horse, and uh, people should get that order in now for Rashomon. And uh, also, what you're working with with Alex DeCampi, Bad Girls, coming up next this week, next year. So, um, yeah. you know, thank you so we have much. A long, a long path uh, <laughs> yet, but uh, I hope to have the book finished at the end of the year. Uh, it, it's 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 cool because it's a uh, it's a publisher of books, so they have a lot of pacing. Another pacing. It's it's not that madness of the monthly book. Mm. So it's it's great to have time to to stop and think about the the storytelling that you're doing and and you know check all your work, check all the stuff again, and make some some fixes. I hope this uh, will help to get a better final art of the and a final book at the end. That, that I think this, this is the most important thing. Um really looking forward to it and i'm going to keep watching that and when it's out I'd like to have you back and, and talk about the book and how the whole process went and yeah, how the course. reception is of course well victor thank you so much this has been a lot of fun oh thanks to you and thus concludes my giant-sized episode of creator talks with frank barbieri and for the first time on an english-speaking podcast victor santos I hope you enjoyed this episode, and I hope you'll check out my other episodes if this is your first one. Last week, I released Time and Vine, published through IDW and written and drawn by Tom Zaylor. And David Abalone, the writer of Betty Page, coming out from Dynamite Comics. Give those a listen if you haven't had a chance, and I hope you enjoyed this one. Let me know what you think. If you prefer through social media, you can reach me through Facebook and Twitter, at CreatorTalksPod, that's at CreatorTalksPod, or by email at CreatorTalks.com. Also on the website are the podcasts I mentioned previously and other podcasts from the catalog, so check those out. You'll also see a written interview that I had with Frank Barbieri and Victor Santos while I was working at Word of the Nerd. I want to thank everyone who's following the podcast, who's been listening. I want to thank Longbox Review for giving me a shout-out and mentioning me on the show. And I also want to thank the comic book shop where I buy my comic books every week and where I first met Mr. Frank Barbieri as a fan before I began writing reviews and interviews and recording podcasts. It's been a long weekend, put a lot of work in, and I had two interviews back-to-back. -back. The first one, interviewing a writer in Singapore, followed by my call with Victor Santos in Spain. 
and editing and getting this all set for release today on Monday, June 5th. So I've got another great podcast to prep for on Monday night so uh, that I can get that out to you as soon as possible, possibly next week on Thursday. Who's it going to be? Stay tuned, listen, and find out, and follow me on social media to get the word when that podcast is ready to go. And these are two more high-profile creators, so don't miss it. Rate and review Creator Talks on iTunes and Stitcher. For Creator Talks, I'm your host, Christopher Calloway. Until next time.